A car from police headquarters was waiting for us in Paseo del Born. Marcos and Castello pushed me unceremoniously into the back, posting themselves on either side. Is the gentleman comfortable? asked Castello, digging his elbow into my ribs. The inspector sat in the front next to the driver. None of them opened their mouths during the five minutes it took to drive up Via Laetana, deserted and buried in an ochre mist. When we reached the central police station, Grandes got out and went in without waiting. Marcos and Castello took an arm each as if they were trying to crush my bones, and dragged me through a maze of stairs, passages and cells until we reached a room with no windows that smelled of sweat and urine. In the centre stood a worm-eaten table and two dilapidated chairs. A naked bulb hung from the ceiling, and there was a grating over a drain in the middle of the room where the two inclines of the floor met. It was bitterly cold. Before I realised what was happening, the door was shut behind me with a bang. I heard footsteps moving away. I walked round that dungeon a dozen times until I collapsed on one of the shaky chairs. For the next hour, apart from my breathing, the creaking of the chair and the echo of water dripping, I didn't hear another sound. An eternity later I heard footsteps approaching, and shortly afterwards the door opened. Marcos stuck his head round and peered into the cell with a smile. He held the door open for Grandes, who came in without looking at me, and sat on the chair on the other side of the table. Grandes nodded to Marcos, and the latter closed the door, but not without first blowing me a silent kiss. The inspector took a good thirty seconds before deigning to look me in the eye. If you were trying to impress me, you've done so, inspector. He ignored my irony and fixed his eyes on me as if he'd never seen me before in his life. What do you know about Damian Rures? he asked. I shrugged my shoulders. Not much. He owns a magic shop. In fact, I knew nothing about him until a few days ago, when Ricardo Salvador mentioned him. Today, or yesterday, I've lost track of time. I went to see him in search of information about the previous occupier of the house in which I live. Salvador told me that Rures and the owner, Marlasca, yes, Diego Marlasca, as I was saying, Salvador told me that Rures had had dealings with him some years ago. I asked Rures a few questions, and he replied as best he could. There's little else. Grandes inclined his head. Is that your story? I don't know. What's yours? Let's compare, and perhaps I'll finally understand what the hell I'm doing here in the middle of the night, freezing to death in a basement that smells of shit. Don't raise your voice to me, Martin. I'm sorry, Inspector, but I think you could at least have the courtesy to tell me why I'm here. I'll tell you why you're here. About three hours ago, one of the residents of the apartment block in which Senor Rures's shop is located was returning home late when he found that the door of the shop was open and the lights were on. He was surprised, so he went in, and when he did not see the owner or hear him reply to his calls, he went into the back room where he found Rures, his hands and feet bound with wire to a chair over a pool of blood. Grandes paused, his eyes boring into me. I imagined there was more to come. Grandes always liked to end on something dramatic. Dead? I asked. Grandes nodded. Quite dead. Someone had amused himself by pulling out the man's eyes and cutting out his tongue with a pair of scissors. The pathologist believes he died by choking on his own blood about half an hour later. I felt I needed air. Grandes was walking around. He stopped behind my back and I heard him light a cigarette. How did you get that bruise? It looks recent. I slipped in the rain and hit the back of my neck. Don't treat me like an idiot, Martine. It's not advisable. 
Would you rather I left you for a while with Marcos and Castello to see if they can teach you some manners? All right, someone hit me. Who? I don't know. This conversation is beginning to bore me, Martin. Well, just imagine what it's doing to me. Grandes sat down in front of me again and offered a conciliatory smile. Surely you don't believe I had anything to do with the death of that man? No, Martin, I don't. What I do believe is that you're not telling me the truth, and that somehow the death of that poor wretch is related to your visit, like the deaths of Barido and Escobillas. What makes you think that? Call it a hunch. I've already told you I don't know anything, and I've already warned you not to take me for an idiot, Martin. Marcos and Castello are out there waiting for an opportunity to have a private conversation with you. Is that what you want? No. Then help me get you out of this so that I can send you home before your sheets get cold. What do you want to hear? The truth, for example. I pushed the chair back and stood up, exasperated. I was chilled to the bone, and my head felt as if it was going to burst. I began to walk round the table in circles, spitting out the words as if they were stones. The truth. I'll tell you the truth. The truth is, I don't know what the truth is. I don't know what to tell you. I don't know why I went to see Rurez or Salvador. I don't know what I'm looking for or what is happening to me. That's the truth. Grandes watched me stoically. Stop walking in circles and sit down. You're making me giddy. I don't want to. Martin, you're not telling me anything. All I'm asking you to do is to help me so that I can help you. You wouldn't be able to help me even if you wanted to. Then who can? I dropped back into the chair. I don't know, I murmured. I thought I saw a hint of pity, or perhaps it was just tiredness in the inspector's eyes. Look, Martin, let's begin again. Let's do it your way. Tell me a story, and start at the beginning. I stared at him in silence. Martin, don't think that because I like you, I'm not going to do my work. Do whatever you have to do. Call Hansel and Gretel if you like. At that moment, I noticed a touch of anxiety on his face. Footsteps were advancing along the corridor, and something told me the inspector wasn't expecting them. I heard voices, and nervously Grandes went up to the door. He tapped three times with his knuckles, and Marcos, who was on guard, opened up. A man dressed in a camel-hair coat and a matching suit came into the room, looked around him in disgust, and then gave me a sweet smile while he calmly removed his gloves. I watched him in astonishment. It was Valera, the lawyer. "'Are you all right, Senor Martin?' he asked. I nodded. The lawyer led the inspector over to a corner. I heard them whispering. Grandes gesticulated with suppressed fury. Valera watched him coldly and shook his head. The conversation went on for almost a minute. Finally, Grandes huffed and let his hands fall to his side. Pick up your scarf, Senor Martin. We walked down the dimly lit passage until we came to a staircase that took us up to another long corridor. At the end of the second corridor, a small door opened to the ground-floor entrance hall and the main exit, where a chauffeur-driven Mercedes-Benz was waiting for us with its engine running. As soon as he saw Valera, the chauffeur jumped out and opened the door for us. I sat down on the back seat. The car was equipped with heating, and the leather seats were warm. Valera sat next to me, and with a tap on the glass that separated the back from the driver's compartment, instructed the chauffeur to set off. Once the car was en route and had settled in the central lane of Via Laetana, Valera smiled at me as if nothing had happened. He pointed at the mist that parted like undergrowth as we drove through it. A disagreeable night, isn't it? he said casually. Where are we going? To your home, of course. 
unless you'd rather go to a hotel or... No, that's fine. The car was rolling along down Via Laetana. Valera gazed at the deserted streets with little interest. What are you doing? I finally asked. What do you think I'm doing? Representing you and looking after your interests. Tell the driver to stop the car, I said. The chauffeur looked at Valera's eyes in the mirror. Valera shook his head and gestured to him to continue. Don't talk nonsense, Senor Martin. It's late, it's cold, and I'm taking you home. I'd rather walk. Be reasonable. Who sent you? Valera sighed and rubbed his eyes. You have good friends, Senor Martin. It's important in life to have good friends, and especially to know how to keep them, he said. As important as knowing when one is stubbornly following the wrong path. Might that path be the one that goes past Casa Malasca, number 13, Carretera de Valvidrera? Valera smiled patiently, as if he was scolding an unruly child. Senor Martin, believe me when I say that the further away you stay from that house and that business, the better for you. Do accept, at least, this piece of advice. When he reached Paseo de Colón, the chauffeur turned and drove up to Calle Comercio, and from there to the entrance of Paseo del Borne. The carts with meat and fish, ice and spices were beginning to accumulate opposite the large marketplace. As we drove past, four boys were unloading the carcass of a calf, leaving a trail of blood that could be smelled in the air. Your area is charming, full of picturesque scenes, Senor Martin. The driver stopped on the corner of Calle Flasileras and got out of the car to open the door for us. The lawyer got out with me. I'll come with you to the door, he said. People will think we're lovers. We entered the alleyway, a chasm of shadows, and headed towards my house. On reaching the front door, the lawyer offered me his hand with professional courtesy. Thanks for getting me out of that place. Don't thank me, replied Valera, pulling an envelope out of the inside pocket of his coat. I recognized the wax seal with the angel even in the tenuous light that dripped from the street lamp above our heads. Valera handed me the envelope and, with a final nod, walked back to the waiting car. I opened my front door and went up the steps to the apartment. When I got in, I went straight up to the study and placed the envelope on the desk. I opened it and pulled out the folded sheet of paper with the boss's writing. Martin, dear friend, I trust this note finds you in good health and good spirits. I happen to be passing through the city and would love the pleasure of your company this Friday at seven o'clock in the evening in the billiard room of the Equestrian Club, where we can talk about the progress of our project. Until then, please accept my warm regards, Andreas Corelli. I folded the sheet of paper and put it carefully in the envelope. Then I lit a match, and holding the envelope by one corner, moved it closer to the flame. I watched it burn until the wax turned to scarlet tears that fell on the desk and my fingers were covered in ashes. Go to hell, I whispered. The night, darker than ever, leaned in against the window panes. Sitting in the armchair in the study, I waited for a dawn that did not come until anger got the better of me and I went out into the street, ready to defy Valera's warning. A cold, biting wind was blowing, the sort that precedes dawn in winter time. As I crossed Paseo del Bone, I thought I heard footsteps behind me. I turned round for a moment, but couldn't see anyone except for the market boys unloading carts, so I continued walking. When I reached Plaza Palacio, I saw the lights of the first tram of the day waiting in the mist that crept up from the port.
Snakes of blue light crackled along the overhead power cable. I stepped into the tram and sat at the front. The same conductor who'd been present on my last trip took the money for my ticket. A dozen or so passengers dribbled in, each one alone. After a few minutes, the tram set off and we began our journey. Across the sky stretched a web of red capillaries between black clouds. There was no need to be a poet or a wise man to know that it was going to be a bad day. By the time we reached Sariar, dawn had broken with a grey dull light that robbed the morning of any colour. I climbed the deserted, narrow streets of the district towards the lower slopes of the hillside. Occasionally I thought I again heard footsteps behind me, but each time I stopped and looked back there was nobody there. At last I reached the entrance to the passage leading to Casamalaska and made my way through a blanket of dead leaves that crunched underfoot. Slowly I crossed the courtyard and walked up the stairs to the front door, peering through the large windows of the façade. I rapped with the knocker three times and moved back a few steps. I waited for a moment, but no answer came. I knocked again and heard the echoes fading away inside the house. Good morning, I called out. The grove surrounding the property seemed to absorb the sound of my voice. I went around the house, past the swimming pool area, and then on to the conservatory. Its windows were darkened by closed wooden shutters, which made it impossible to see inside. But one of the windows next to the glass door was slightly open. The bolt securing the door was just visible through the gap. I put my arm through the window and slid open the bolt. The door gave way with a metallic creak. I looked behind me once more to make sure there was nobody there, and went in. As my eyes adjusted to the gloom, I began to distinguish a few outlines. I went over to the windows and half opened the shutters. A fan of light cut through the darkness, revealing the full profile of the room. Is anyone here? I called out. The sound of my voice sank into the bowels of the house like a coin falling into a bottomless well. I walked to the end of the conservatory where an arch of carved wood led to a dim corridor lined with paintings that were barely visible on the velvet-covered walls. At the end of the corridor there was a large round sitting room with mosaic floors and a mural of enameled glass showing the figure of a white angel with one arm extended and fingers pointing like flames. A wide staircase rose in a spiral around the room. I stopped at the foot of the stairs and called out again. Good morning, Senora Malaska. The total silence of the house drowned the dull echo of my words. I went up the stairs to the first floor and paused on the landing, looking down on the sitting room and the mural. From there I could see the trail my feet had left on the film of dust covering the ground. Apart from my footsteps, the only other sign of movement I could discern was parallel lines drawn in the dust about half a metre apart, and a trail of footprints between them. Large footprints. I stared at those marks in some confusion, until I understood what I was seeing. The movement of a wheelchair, and the marks of the person pushing it. I thought I heard a noise behind my back and turned. A half-open door at one end of the corridor was gently swinging, and I could feel a breath of cold air. I moved slowly towards the door, glancing at the rooms on either side bedrooms with dust sheets covering the furniture. The closed windows and heavy darkness suggested these rooms had not been used in a long time, except for one, which was larger than the others, the master bedroom. It smelled of that odd mixture of perfume and illness associated with elderly people. I imagined this must be the room of Marlaska's widow, 
but there was no sign of her. The bed was neatly made. Opposite it stood a chest of drawers with a number of framed photographs on it. In all of them, without exception, was a boy with fair hair and a cheerful expression. Ismail Malaska. In some pictures he posed next to his mother or other children. There was no sign of Diego Malaska in any of them. The sound of a door banging in the corridor startled me again, and I exited the bedroom, leaving the pictures as I'd found them. The door to the room at the end was still swinging back and forth. I walked up to it and stopped for a second before entering, taking a deep breath. Inside, everything was white. The walls and the ceilings were painted an immaculate white. White silk curtains, a small bed covered with white sheets, a white carpet, white shelves and cupboards. After the darkness that had prevailed throughout the house, the contrast dazzled my vision for a few seconds. The room seemed to be straight out of a fairy tale. There were toys and storybooks on the shelves. A life-size china harlequin sat at a dressing table, looking at himself in the mirror. A mobile of white birds hung from the ceiling. At first sight it looked like the room of a spoilt child, Ismail Malaska, but it had the oppressive air of a funeral chamber. I sat on the bed and sighed. Only then did I notice that something in the room seemed out of place beginning with the smell. A sickly sweet stench floated in the air. I stood up and looked around me. On a chest of drawers I saw a china plate with a black candle. Its wax melted into a cluster of tears. I turned round. The smell seemed to be coming from the head of the bed. I opened the drawer of the bedside table and found a crucifix broken in three. The stench grew stronger. I walked around the room a few times, but was unable to find the source. Then I saw it. There was something under the bed. A tin box, the sort that children use to hold their childhood treasures. I pulled out the box and placed it on the bed. The stench was now more powerful and penetrating. I ignored my nausea and opened the box. Inside was a white dove, its heart pierced by a needle. I took a step back, covering my mouth and nose, and retreated to the corridor. The harlequin with its jackal smile observed me in the mirror. I ran back to the staircase and hurtled down the stairs, looking for the passage that led to the reading room and the door to the garden. At one point I thought I was lost, and the house, like a creature capable of moving its passageways and rooms at will, was trying to prevent me from escaping. At last I sighted the conservatory and ran to the door. Only then... While I was struggling to release the bolt, did I hear malicious laughter behind me, and know I was not alone in the house. I turned for an instant and saw a dark figure watching me from the end of the corridor, carrying a shining object in its hand. A knife. The bolt yielded, and I pushed open the door, falling headlong onto the marble tiles surrounding the swimming pool. My face was barely centimetres away from the surface, and I could smell the stench of stagnant water. For a moment I peered into the shadows at the bottom of the pool. There was a short break in the clouds, and a shaft of sunlight pierced the water, touching the floor with its loose fragments of mosaic. The vision was over in a second. The wheelchair, tilted forward, stranded on the pool floor. The sunlight continued its journey to the deep end, and it was there that I saw her. Lying against the wall was what looked like a body shrouded in a threadbare white dress. At first I thought it was a doll, with scarlet lips shriveled by the water, 
and eyes as bright as sapphires. Her red hair undulated gently in the rancid water, and her skin was blue. It was Marlaska's widow. A second later the gap in the clouds closed again, and the water was once more a clouded mirror in which I could glimpse only my face and a form that appeared in the doorway of the conservatory behind me, holding a knife. I shot up and ran straight into the garden, crossing the grove, scratching my face and hands on the bushes, until I reached the iron door and was out in the alleyway. I didn't stop running until I reached the main road. There I turned out of breath and saw that Casamalasca was once again hidden down its long alleyway, invisible to the world. I returned home on the same tram, crossing a city that was growing darker by the minute. An icy wind lifted the fallen leaves from the street. When I got out in Plaza Palacio, I heard two sailors who were walking up from the docks talking about a storm that was approaching from the sea and would hit the town before nightfall. I looked up and saw a blanket of reddish clouds begin to cover the sky, spreading over the sea like blood. In the streets surrounding the Borne market, people were rushing to secure doors and windows, shopkeepers were closing early, and children came outside to play in the wind, lifting their arms and laughing at the distant roar of thunder. Street lamps flickered, and a flash of lightning bathed the buildings in a sudden white light. I hurried to the door of the tower house and rushed up the steps. The rumble of the storm could be felt through the walls, getting closer. It was so cold indoors that I could see my breath as I stepped into the corridor. I went straight to the room with an old charcoal stove that I had used only four or five times since I lived there, and lit it with a wad of old newspapers. I also lit the wood fire in the gallery and sat on the floor facing the flames. My hands were shaking. I didn't know whether from cold or fear. I waited until I had warmed up staring out at the web of white light traced by lightning across the sky. The rain didn't arrive until nightfall, and when it did, it plummeted in curtains of furious drops that quickly blinded the night, and flooded rooftops and alleyways, hitting walls and window panes with tremendous force. Little by little, with the help of the stove and the fireplace, the house started to warm up, but I was still cold. I got up and went to the bedroom in search of blankets to wrap around myself. I opened the wardrobe and started to rummage in the two large drawers at the bottom. The case was still there, hidden at the back. I picked it up and placed it on the bed. I opened the case and stared at my father's old revolver, the only thing I had left of him. I held it, stroking the trigger with my thumb. I opened the drum and inserted six bullets from the ammunition box in the false bottom of the case. I left the box on the bedside table and took the gun and blanket back to the gallery. Lying on the sofa, wrapped in the blanket with the gun against my chest, I abandoned myself to the storm behind the window panes. I could hear the ticking of the clock on the mantelpiece, but didn't need to look at it to realise that there was barely half an hour to go before my meeting with the boss in the billiard room at the equestrian club. I closed my eyes and imagined him travelling through the deserted streets of the city, sitting on the back seat of his car, his golden eyes shining in the dark, the silver angel on the hood of the Rolls-Royce plunging through the storm. I imagined him motionless, like a statue, not breathing or smiling, with no expression at all. I heard the crackle of burning wood and the sound of the rain on the windows. I fell asleep with the weapon in my hands and the certainty that I was not going to keep my appointment.
Shortly after midnight, I opened my eyes. The fire was almost out, and the gallery was submerged in the flickering half-light projected by the last blue flames in the embers. It continued to rain heavily. The revolver was still in my hands. It felt warm. I remained like that for a few seconds, barely blinking. I knew that there was someone at the door before I heard the knock. I pushed aside the blanket and sat up. I heard the knock again, knuckles on the front door. I stood up, holding the gun in my hands, and went into the corridor. Again the knock. I took a few steps towards the door and stopped. I imagined him smiling on the landing, the angel on his lapel gleaming in the dark. I pulled back the hammer on the gun. Once again the sound of a hand knocking on the door. I tried to turn the light on, but there was no power. I kept walking. I was about to slide the spy hole open, but didn't dare. I stood there, stock still, hardly daring to breathe, with the gun raised and pointing towards the door. Go away, I called out with no strength in my voice. Then I heard a sob on the other side of the door and lowered the gun. I opened the door and found her there in the shadows. Her clothes were soaking and she was shivering. Her skin was frozen. When she saw me, she almost collapsed into my arms. I could find no words. I just held her tight. She smiled weakly at me, and when I put my hand on her cheek, she kissed it and closed her eyes. Forgive me, whispered Christina. She opened her eyes and gave me a broken look that would have stayed with me even in hell. I smiled at her. Welcome home. I undressed her by candlelight. I removed her shoes and dress, which was soaking wet, and her laddered stockings. I dried her body and her hair with a clean towel. She was still shaking with cold when I put her to bed and lay down next to her, hugging her to give her warmth. We stayed like that for a long time, not saying anything, just listening to the rain. Slowly I felt her body warming up and her breathing become deeper. I thought she had fallen asleep, but then I heard her speak. Your friend came to see me. Isabella. She told me she'd hidden my letters. She said she hadn't done it in bad faith. She thought she was doing it for your own good. Perhaps she was right. I leaned over and searched her eyes. I caressed her lips, and for the first time she smiled weakly. I thought you'd forgotten me, she said. I tried. Her face was marked by tiredness. The months I had not seen her had drawn lines on her skin, and her eyes had an air of defeat and emptiness. We're no longer young, she said, reading my thoughts. When have we ever been young, you and I? I pulled away the blanket and looked at her naked body stretched out on the white sheet. I stroked her neck and her breasts, barely touching her skin with my fingertips. I drew circles on her belly and traced the outline of the bones of her hips. I let my fingers play with the almost transparent hair between her thighs. Christina watched me without saying a word, her smile sad and her eyes half open. What are we going to do? she asked. I bent over her and kissed her lips. She embraced me, and we remained like that 
as the light from the candle sputtered, then went out. We'll think of something, she whispered. I woke up shortly after dawn and discovered I was alone in the bed. I sat up suddenly, fearing that Christina had left again in the middle of the night. Then I saw her clothes and shoes on the chair and let out a deep sigh. I found her in the gallery, wrapped in a blanket, sitting on the floor by the fireplace, where a breath of blue fire emerged from a smouldering log. I sat down next to her and kissed her on the neck. I couldn't sleep, she said, her eyes fixed on the fire. You should have woken me. I didn't dare. You looked as if you were sleeping for the first time in months. I preferred to explore your house. And? This house is cursed with sadness, she said. Why don't you set fire to it? And where would we live? In the plural. Why not? I thought you'd stopped writing fairy tales. It's like riding a bike, once you learn. Christina looked at me. What's in that room at the end of the corridor? Nothing. Junk. It's locked. Do you want to see it? She shook her head. It's only a house, Christina. A pile of stones and memories, that's all. Christina nodded but looked unconvinced. Why don't we go away? She asked. Where to? Far away. I couldn't help smiling, but she didn't smile back. How far? I asked. Far enough that people won't know who we are? And won't care either? Is that what you want? I asked. Don't you? I hesitated for a second. What about Pedro? I asked, almost choking on the words. She let the blanket fall from her shoulders and looked at me defiantly. Do you need his permission to sleep with me? I bit my tongue. Christina looked at me, her eyes full of tears. I'm sorry, she whispered. I had no right to say that. I picked up the blanket and tried to cover her, but she moved away, rejecting my gesture. Pedro has left me, she said in a broken voice. He went to the Ritz yesterday to wait until I'd gone. He said he knew I didn't love him, that I married him out of gratitude or pity. He said he doesn't want my compassion, and that every day I spend with him pretending to love him only hurts him. Whatever I did, he would always love me, he said. And that is why... He doesn't want to see me again. Her hands were shaking. He's loved me with all his heart, and all I've done is make him miserable, she murmured. She closed her eyes and her face twisted in pain. A moment later she let out a deep moan and began to hit her face and body with her fists. I threw myself on her and put my arms around her, holding her still. Christina struggled and shouted. I pressed her against the floor, restraining her. Slowly she gave in, exhausted, her face covered in tears, her eyes reddened. We remained like that for almost half an hour, until I felt her body relaxing, and she fell into a long silence. I covered her with the blanket and embraced her, hiding my own tears. We'll go far away, I whispered in her ear, not knowing whether she could hear or understand me. We'll go far away when nobody will know who we are, and won't care either. I promise. Christina tilted her head and looked at me, 
her face robbed of all expression, as if her soul had been smashed to pieces with a hammer. I held her tight and kissed her on the forehead. The rain was still whipping against the window panes. Trapped in that grey, pale light of a dead dawn, it occurred to me for the first time that we were sinking. That same morning, I abandoned my work for the boss. While Christina slept, I went up to the study and put the folder containing all the pages, notes and drafts for the project in an old trunk by the wall. My first impulse had been to set fire to it, but I didn't have the courage. I had always felt that the pages I left behind were a part of me. Normal people bring children into the world. We novelists bring books. We are condemned to put our whole lives into them, even though they hardly ever thank us for it. We are condemned to die in their pages, and sometimes even to let our books be the ones who, in the end, will take our lives. Among all the strange creatures made of paper and ink that I'd brought into the world, this one, my mercenary offering to the promises of the boss, was undoubtedly the most grotesque. There was nothing in those pages that deserved anything better than to be burned and yet they were still flesh of my flesh, and I couldn't find the courage to destroy them. I abandoned the work in the bottom of that trunk, and left the study with a heavy heart, almost ashamed of my cowardice and the murky sense of paternity inspired in me by that manuscript of shadows. The boss would probably have appreciated the irony of the situation. All it inspired in me was disgust. Christina slept well into the afternoon, I took advantage of her sleep to go over to the grocer's shop next to the market and buy some milk, bread and cheese. The rain had stopped at last, but the streets were full of puddles and you could feel the dampness in the air like a cold dust that permeated your clothes and your bones. While I waited for my turn in the shop I had the feeling that someone was watching me. When I went outside again and crossed Paseo del Borne, I turned and saw that a boy was following me. He could not have been more than five years old, I stopped and looked at him. The boy held my gaze. Don't be afraid, I said. Come here. The boy came closer until he was standing about two metres away. His skin was pale, almost blue, as if he'd never seen the sunlight. He was dressed in black and wore new shiny patent leather shoes. His eyes were dark, with pupils so large they left no space for the whites. What's your name? I asked. The boy smiled and pointed at me with his finger. I was about to take a step towards him, but he ran off, disappearing into Paseo del Borne. When I got back to my front door, I found an envelope stuck in it. The red wax seal with the angel was still warm. I looked up and down the street, but couldn't see anybody. I went in and double-locked the main door behind me. Then I paused at the foot of the staircase, and opened the envelope. Dear friend, I deeply regret that you were unable to come to our meeting last night. I trust you are well and that there has been no emergency or setback. I am sorry I couldn't enjoy the pleasure of your company, but I hope that whatever it was that did not allow you to join me is quickly and favourably resolved, and that next time it will be easier for us to meet. I must leave the city for a few days, but as soon as I return I'll send word. Hoping to hear from you and to learn about your progress in our joint project, Please accept, as always, my friendship and affection, Andreas Corelli. I crushed the letter in my fist and put it in my pocket, then went quietly into the apartment and closed the door. I peeked into the bedroom and saw that Christina was still asleep. 
Then I went into the kitchen and began to prepare coffee and a light lunch. A few minutes later I heard Christina's footsteps behind me. She was looking at me from the doorway, clad in an old jumper of mine that went halfway down her thighs. Her hair was a mess, and her eyes were still swollen. Her lips and cheeks had dark bruises as if I'd hit her hard. She avoided my eyes. I'm sorry, she whispered. Are you hungry? I asked. She shook her head, but I ignored the gesture and motioned for her to sit at the table. I poured her a cup of coffee with milk and sugar and gave her a slice of freshly baked bread with some cheese and a little ham. She made no move to touch her plate. Just a bite, I suggested. She nibbled the cheese and gave me a smile. It's good, she said. We ate in silence. To my surprise, Christina finished off half the food on her plate. Then she hid behind the cup of coffee and gave me a fleeting look. If you want, I'll leave today, she said at last. Don't worry, Pedro gave me money and I don't want you to go anywhere. I don't want you to go away ever again, do you hear me? I'm not good company, David. That makes two of us. Did you mean it, what you said about going far away? I nodded. My father used to say that life doesn't give second chances. Only to those who never had a first chance. Actually, there's second-hand chances that someone else hasn't made use of. But that's better than nothing. She smiled faintly. Take me for a walk, she suddenly said. Where do you want to go? I want to say goodbye to Barcelona. Halfway through the afternoon, the sun appeared from behind the blanket of clouds left by the storm. The shining streets were transformed into mirrors on which pedestrians walked, reflecting the amber of the sky. I remember that we went to the foot of the Ramblas, where the statue of Columbus peered out through the mist. We walked without saying a word, gazing at the buildings and the crowds as if they were a mirage, as if the city were already deserted and forgotten. Barcelona had never seemed so beautiful and so sad to me as it did that afternoon. When it began to grow dark, we walked to the Semperi and Sons bookshop and stood in a doorway on the opposite side of the street where nobody could see us. The shop window of the old bookshop cast a faint light over the damp, gleaming cobblestones. Inside we could see Isabella standing on a ladder, sorting out the books on the top shelf, as Semperi's son pretended to be going through an accounts book looking furtively at her ankles all the while. Sitting in a corner, old and tired, Senor Sempere watched them both with a sad smile. This is the place where I've found almost all the good things in my life, I said without thinking. I don't want to say goodbye. When we returned to the tower house, it was already dark. As we walked in, we were greeted by the warmth of the fire which I had left burning when we went out. Christina went ahead down the corridor and, without saying a word, began to get undressed, leaving a trail of clothes on the floor. I found her lying on the bed, waiting. I lay down beside her and let her guide my hands. As I caressed her, I could feel her muscles going tense. There was no tenderness in her eyes, just a longing for warmth and an urgency. I abandoned myself to her body, charging at her with anger, feeling her nails dig into my skin. I heard her moan with pain and with life, as if she lacked air. At last we collapsed, exhausted and covered in sweat. Christina leaned her head on my shoulder and looked into my eyes. 
Your friend told me you'd got yourself into trouble. Isabella. She's very worried about you. Isabella has a tendency to believe she's my mother. I don't think that's what she was getting at. I avoided her eyes. She told me you were working on a new book, commissioned by a foreign publisher. She calls him the boss. She says he's paying you a fortune, but you feel guilty for having accepted the money. She says you're afraid of this man, the boss, and there's something murky about the whole business. I sighed with annoyance. Is there anything Isabella hasn't told you? The rest is between us, she answered, winking at me. Was she lying? She wasn't lying, she was speculating. And what's the book about? It's a story for children. Isabella told me you'd say that. If Isabella has already given you all the answers, why are you questioning me? Christina looked at me severely. For your peace of mind and Isabella's, I've abandoned the book. C'est fini, I assured her. Christina frowned and looked dubious. And this man, the boss, does he know? I haven't spoken to him yet, but I suppose he has a good idea, and if he doesn't, he soon will. So you'll have to give him back the money. I don't think he's bothered about the money in the least. Christina fell into a long silence. May I read it? she asked at last. No. Why not? It's a draft, and it doesn't make any sense yet. It's a pile of ideas and notes, loose fragments, nothing readable. It would bore you. I'd still like to read it. Why? Because you've written it. Pedro always says that the only way you can truly get to know an author is through the trail of ink he leaves behind him. The person you think you see is only an empty character. Truth is always hidden in fiction. He must have read that on a postcard. In fact, he took it from one of your books. I know because I've read it too. Plagiarism doesn't prevent it being nonsense. I think it makes sense. Then it must be true. May I read it, then? No. That evening, sitting opposite one another at the kitchen table, looking up occasionally, we ate the remains of the bread and cheese. Christina had little appetite, and examined every morsel of bread in the light of the oil lamp before putting it in her mouth. There's a train leaving the Estation de Francia for Paris tomorrow at midday, she said. Is that too soon? I couldn't get the image of Andreas Corelli out of my mind. I imagined him coming up the stairs and calling at my door any moment. I suppose not, I agreed. I know a little hotel opposite the Luxembourg Gardens where they rent out rooms by the month. It's a bit expensive, but, she added. I preferred not to ask her how she knew of the hotel. The price doesn't matter, but I don't speak French. I do. I looked down. Look at me, David. I raised my eyes reluctantly. If you'd rather I left. I shook my head. She held my hand and brought it to her lips. It'll be fine, you'll see, she said. I know. It will be the first thing in my life that will work out all right. I looked at her, a broken woman, with tears in her eyes, and didn't wish for anything in the world other than the ability to give her back what she'd never had. We lay down on the sofa in the gallery under a couple of blankets, staring at the embers in the fireplace. I fell asleep, stroking Christina's hair, thinking it was the last night I would spend in that house, the prison in which I had buried my youth. I dreamed that I was running through the streets of a Barcelona strewn with clocks whose hands were turning backwards. Alleyways and avenues twisted as I ran, as if they had a will of their own, creating a living labyrinth that blocked me at every turn. 
Finally, under a midday sun that burned in the sky like a red-hot metal sphere, I managed to reach the Estacion de Francia and was speeding towards the platform where the train was beginning to pull away. I ran after it, but the train gathered speed, and despite all my efforts, all I managed to do was touch it with the tips of my fingers. I kept on running until I was out of breath, and when I reached the end of the platform, fell into a void. When I glanced up, it was too late. The train was disappearing into the distance, Christina's face staring back at me from the last window. I opened my eyes and knew that Christina was not there. The fire was reduced to a handful of ashes. I stood up and looked through the windows. Dawn was breaking. I pressed my face against the glass and noticed a flickering light shining from the windows of the study. I went to the spiral staircase that led up to the tower. A copper-coloured glow spilled down over the steps. I climbed them slowly. When I reached the study, I stopped in the doorway. Christina was sitting on the floor with her back to me. The trunk by the wall was open. Christina was holding the folder containing the boss's manuscript and was untying the ribbon. When she heard my footsteps, she stopped. What are you doing up here? I asked, trying to hide the note of alarm in my voice. Christina turned and smiled. Nosing around? She followed the direction of my gaze to the folder in her hands and adopted a mischievous expression. What's in here? Nothing. Notes, comments, nothing of any interest. You liar. I bet this is the book you've been working on, she said. I'm dying to read it. I'd rather you didn't, I said in the most relaxed tone I could muster. Christina frowned. I took advantage of the moment to kneel down beside her and delicately snatch the folder away. What's the matter, David? Nothing's the matter, I assured her with a stupid smile plastered across my lips. I tied the ribbon again and put the folder back in the trunk. Aren't you going to lock it? asked Christina. I turned round, ready to offer some excuse, but Christina had already disappeared down the stairs. I sighed and closed the lid of the trunk. I found her in the bedroom. For a moment she looked at me as if I were a stranger. Forgive me, I began. You don't have to ask me to forgive you, she replied. I shouldn't have stuck my nose in where I have no business. No, it's not that. It doesn't matter she said icily, her tone cutting the air. I put off a second remark for a more auspicious moment. The ticket office at the Estacion de Francia will be open soon, I said. I thought I'd go along so that I can buy the tickets first thing. Then I'll go to the bank and withdraw some money. Very good. Why don't you get a bag ready in the meantime? I'll be back in a couple of hours at most. Christina barely smiled. I'll be here. I went over to her and held her face in my hands. By tomorrow night, we'll be in Paris, I said. I kissed her on the forehead and left. The large clock suspended from the ceiling of the Estacion de Francia was reflected in the shining surface of the vestibule beneath my feet. The hands pointed to 7.35 in the morning, but the ticket offices hadn't opened yet. A porter, armed with a large broom in an exaggerated manner, was polishing the floor, whistling a popular folk song, and, within the limits imposed by his limp, jauntily moving his hips. As I had nothing better to do, I stood there observing him. He was a small man, who looked as if the world had wrinkled him up to such a degree that it had taken everything from him except his smile and the pleasure of being able to clean that bit of floor as if it were the Sistine Chapel. There was nobody else around, but finally he realised that he was being watched, 
when his fifth pass over the floor brought him to my observation post on one of the wooden benches surrounding the hall, the porter stopped and leaned on his mop with both hands. They never open on time, he explained, pointing towards the ticket offices. Then why do they have a notice saying they open at seven? The little man sighed philosophically. Well, they also have train timetables, and in the fifteen years I've been here I haven't seen a single one leave on time, he remarked. The porter continued with his cleaning, and fifteen minutes later I heard the window of the ticket office opening. I walked over and smiled at the clerk. I thought you opened at seven, I said. That's what the notice says. What do you want? Two first-class tickets to Paris on the midday train. For today. If that's not too much trouble. It took him almost quarter of an hour. Once he had finished his masterpiece, he dropped the tickets on the counter disdainfully. One o'clock, platform four. Don't be late. I paid, and as I didn't then leave, he gave me a hostile look. Anything else? I smiled and shook my head, at which point he closed the window in my face. I turned and crossed the immaculate vestibule, its brilliant shine courtesy of the porter, who waved at me from afar and wished me a bon voyage. The central offices at Banco Hispano Colonial on Calle Fontanella were reminiscent of a temple. The huge portico gave way to a nave which was flanked by statues and extended as far as a row of windows that looked like an altar. On either side of this altar, like side chapels and confessionals, were oak tables and easy chairs fit for a general, with a small army of auditors and other staff in attendance, neatly dressed and sporting friendly smiles. I withdrew four thousand francs and received instructions on how to take out money at their Paris branch, at the intersection of Rue de Rennes and Boulevard Raspey near the hotel Christina had mentioned. With that small fortune in my pocket, I said goodbye, disregarding the warning given to me by the manager about the risks of walking the streets with that amount of cash in my pocket. The sun was rising in a blue sky the colour of good luck, and a clean breeze brought with it the smell of the sea. I was walking briskly as if relieved of a tremendous burden, and I began to think that the city had decided to let me go without any ill-feeling. In Paseo del Borne, I stopped to buy flowers for Cristina, white roses tied with a red ribbon. I climbed the steps to the apartment two at a time, with a smile on my lips, bearing the certainty that this would be the first day of a life I thought I had lost forever. I was about to open the door when, as I put the key in the lock, it gave way. It was open. I stepped into the hall. The house was silent. Cristina! I left the flowers on a shelf and put my head round the door of the bedroom. Christina wasn't there. I walked up the corridor to the gallery. There was no sign of her. I went to the staircase that led up to the study and called out in a loud voice, Christina? Nothing but an echo. I checked the clock on one of the glass cabinets in the gallery. It was almost nine. I imagined that Christina must have gone out to get something, and, being used to leaving such matters as doors and keys to the servants in Pedralbes, she had left the front door open. While I waited, I decided to lie down on the sofa in the gallery. The sun poured in through the large windows, a clean, bright winter sun that felt like a warm caress. I closed my eyes and tried to think about what I was going to take with me. I'd spent half my life surrounded by all these objects, and now, when it was time to part from them, I felt incapable of making a short list of the ones I considered essential. Slowly, without noticing, lying under the warmth of the sun and lulled by tepid hope, I fell asleep. 
When I woke up and looked at the clock, it was twelve-thirty. There was barely half an hour left before the train was due to leave. I jumped up and ran to the bedroom. Christina! This time I went through the whole house, room by room, until I reached the study. There was nobody, but I thought I could smell something odd. Phosphorus. The light from the windows trapped a faint web of blue filaments of smoke suspended in the air. I found a couple of burnt matches on the study floor. I felt a pang of anxiety and knelt down by the trunk. I opened it and sighed with relief. The folder containing the manuscript was still there. I was about to close the lid when I noticed something. The red ribbon of the folder was undone. I picked it up and opened it, leafing through the pages, but nothing seemed to be missing. I closed it again, this time tying the ribbon with a double knot and putting it back in its place. After closing the trunk, I went down to the lower floor. I sat on a chair in the gallery facing the long corridor that led to the front door and waited. The minutes went by with infinite cruelty. Slowly the awareness of what had happened fell upon me, and my desire to believe and to trust turned to bitterness. I heard the bells of Santa Maria strike two o'clock. The train to Paris had left the station, and Christina had not returned. I realized then that she had gone, that those brief hours we had shared were nothing but a mirage. I went up to the study again and sat down. The dazzling day I saw through the window panes was no longer the color of luck. I imagined her back in Villa Helius, seeking the shelter of Pedro Vidal's arms. Resentment slowly poisoned my blood, and I laughed at myself and my absurd hopes. I remained there, incapable of taking a single step, watching the city grow dark as the afternoon went by and the shadows lengthened. Finally I stood up and went over to the window, opened it wide and looked out. Beneath me a sheer drop sufficiently high, sufficiently high to crush my bones, to turn them into daggers that would pierce my body and let it die in a pool of blood on the courtyard below. I wondered whether the pain would be as bad as I imagined it, or whether the impact would be enough to numb the senses and offer a quick, efficient death. Then I heard three knocks on the door. One, two, three. Insistent. I turned, still dazed by my thoughts. The call came again. There was someone knocking on the door. My heart skipped a beat, and I rushed downstairs, convinced that Christina had returned, that something had happened along the way that had detained her, that my miserable, despicable feelings of betrayal were unjustified, and that today was, after all, the first day of that promised life. I ran to the door and opened it. She was there, in the shadows, dressed in white. I was about to embrace her, but then I saw her face, wet with tears. It was not Christina. David, Isabella whispered in a broken voice. Senor Semperi has died. Act Three, The Angel's Game Night had fallen by the time we reached the bookshop. A golden glow broke through the blue of the night outside Semperian Sons, where about a hundred people had gathered holding candles. Some cried quietly, others looked at each other, not knowing what to do. I recognized some of the faces, 
friends and customers of Sempere, people to whom the old bookseller had given books as presents, readers who had been initiated into the art of reading through him. As the news spread through the area, more readers and friends arrived, all finding it hard to believe that Senor Sempere had died. The shop lights were on, and I could see Don Gustavo Bartholo inside, embracing a young man who could hardly stand. I didn't realise it was Sempere's son until Isabella pressed my hand and led me into the bookshop. When he saw me come in, Bartholo looked up and smiled dolefully. The bookseller's son was weeping in his arms, and I didn't have the courage to go and greet him. It was Isabella who went over and put her hand on his back. Sempere's son turned round, and I saw his distraught face. Isabella led him to a chair and helped him sit down. He collapsed like a rag doll, and Isabella knelt down beside him and hugged him. I had never felt as proud of anyone as I was that day of Isabella. She had no longer seemed a girl but a woman, stronger and wiser than any of the rest of us. Bartholo came over and held out a trembling hand. I shook it. It happened a couple of hours ago, Bartholo explained in a hoarse voice. He'd been left alone in the bookshop for a moment, and when his son returned... They say he was arguing with someone. I don't know. The doctor said it was his heart. I swallowed hard. Where is he? Bartholo nodded towards the door of the back room. I walked over, but before going in I took a deep breath and clenched my fists. Then I walked through the doorway and saw him. He was lying on a table, his hands crossed over his belly. His skin was as white as paper, and his features seemed to have sunk in on themselves. His eyes were still open. I found it hard to breathe, and felt as if I'd been dealt a strong blow to the stomach. I leaned on the table and tried to steady myself. Then I bent over him and closed his eyelids. I stroked his cheek, which was cold, and looked around me at that world of pages and dreams he had created. I wanted to believe that Sempere was still there, among his books and his friends. I heard steps behind me and turned. Bartholo was accompanied by two sombre-looking men, both dressed in black. "'These gentlemen are from the undertakers,' said Bartholo. They nodded with professional gravitas and went over to examine the body. One of them, who was tall and gaunt, took a brief measurement and said something to his colleague, who wrote down his instructions in a little notebook. "'Unless there is any change, the funeral will be tomorrow afternoon, in the Pueblo Nuevo Cemetery,' said Bartholo. I thought it best to take charge of the arrangements, because his son is devastated, as you can see. And with these things, the sooner thank you, Don Gustavo. The bookseller glanced at his old friend and smiled tearfully. What are we going to do, now that the old man has left us? he said. I don't know. One of the undertakers discreetly cleared his throat. If it's all right with you, in a moment my colleague and I will go and fetch the coffin, and do whatever you have to do, I cut in. Any preferences regarding the ceremony? I stared at him, not understanding. Was the deceased a believer? Senor Sempere believed in books, I said. I see, he replied as he left the room. I looked at Bartholo, who shrugged his shoulders. Let me ask his son, I said. I went back to the front of the bookshop. Isabella glanced at me inquisitively and stood up. She left Sempere's son and came over to me and I whispered the problem to her. Senor Sempere was a good friend of the local parish priest from the church of Santa Ana right next door. 
People say the bigwigs in the diocese have been wanting to get rid of the priest for years because they consider him a rebel in the ranks. But he's so old they decided to wait for him to die instead. He's too tough a nut for them to crack. Then he's the man we need, I said. I'll speak to him, said Isabella. I pointed towards Semperi's son. How is he? Isabella met my gaze. And how are you? She replied. I'm fine, I lied. Who's going to stay with him tonight? I am, she said without a moment's hesitation. I kissed her on the cheek and returned to the back room. Bartholo was sitting in front of his old friend, and while the two undertakers took further measurements and debated about suits and shoes, he poured two glasses of brandy and offered one to me. I sat down next to him. To the health of our friend Semperi, who taught us all how to read, and even how to live, he said. We toasted and drank in silence. We remained there until the undertakers returned with the coffin and the clothes in which Semperi was going to be buried. If it's all right with you, we'll take care of this. The one who seemed to be the brighter of the two suggested. I agreed. Before leaving the room and going back to the front of the shop, I picked up the old copy of Great Expectations, which I'd never come back to collect, and put it in Semperi's hands. For the journey, I said. A quarter of an hour later, the undertakers brought out the coffin and placed it on a large table that had been set up in the middle of the bookshop. A multitude had been gathering in the street, waiting in silence. I went over to the door and opened it. One by one, the friends of Semperi and Sons filed through. Some were unable to hold back the tears, and such were the scenes of grief that Isabella took the bookseller's son by the hand and led him up to the apartment above the bookshop, where he had lived all his life with his father. Bartholo and I stayed in the shop, keeping old Semperi company, while people came in to say their farewells. Those closest to him stayed on. The wake lasted the entire night. Bartholo remained until five in the morning, and I didn't leave until Isabella came down to the shop shortly after dawn and ordered me to go home, if only to change my clothes and freshen up. I looked at poor Semperi and smiled. I couldn't believe I'd never see him again standing behind the counter when I came in through that door. I remembered the first time I'd visited the bookshop when I was just a child, and the bookseller had seemed tall and strong, indestructible, the wisest man in the world. Go home, please, murmured Isabella. What for? Please. She came out into the street with me and hugged me. I know how fond you were of him and what he meant to you, she said. Nobody knew, I thought. Nobody. But I nodded, and after kissing her on the cheek, I wandered off, walking through streets that seemed emptier than ever, thinking that if I didn't stop, if I kept on walking, I wouldn't notice that the world I thought I knew was no longer there. The crowd had gathered by the cemetery gates to await the arrival of the hearse. Nobody dared speak. We could hear the murmur of the sea in the distance and the echo of a freight train rumbling towards the city of factories that spread out beyond the graveyard. It was cold, and snowflakes drifted in the wind. Shortly after three o'clock in the afternoon, the hearse, pulled by a team of black horses, turned into Avenida de Icaria, which was lined with rows of cypress trees and old storehouses. Semperi's son and Isabella travelled with it. Six colleagues from the Barcelona Booksellers Guild, Don Gustavo among them, lifted the coffin onto their shoulders and carried it into the cemetery. 
The crowd followed, forming a silent cortege that advanced through the streets and the mausoleums of the cemetery, beneath a blanket of low clouds that rippled like a sheet of mercury. I heard someone say that the bookseller's son looked as if he'd aged fifteen years in one night. They referred to him as Senor Sempere because he was now the person in charge of the bookshop. For four generations that enchanted bazaar in Calle Santa Ana had never changed its name and had always been managed by a Senor Sempere. Isabella held his arm. Without her support, he looked as if he might have collapsed like a puppet with no strings. The parish priest of Santa Ana, a veteran the same age as the deceased, waited at the foot of the tomb. A sober slab of marble, without decorative elements, that could almost have gone unnoticed. The six booksellers who had carried the coffin left it resting beside the grave. Bartholo noticed me and greeted me with a nod. I preferred to stay towards the rear of the crowd. I'm not sure whether out of cowardice or respect. From there I could see my father's grave, some thirty metres away. Once the congregation had spread out, the parish priest looked up and smiled. Senor Sempere and I were friends for almost forty years, and in all that time we spoke about God and the mysteries of life on only one occasion. Almost nobody knows this, but Sempere had not set foot in a church since the funeral of his wife Diana, to whose side we bring him today, so that they might lie next to one another forever. Perhaps for that reason people assumed he was an atheist, but he was truly a man of faith. He believed in his friends, in the truth of things, and in something to which he didn't dare put a name or a face, because he said, as priests, that was our job. Senor Sempere believed we are all part of something, and that when we leave this world, our memories and our desires are not lost but go on to become the memories and desires of those who take our place. He didn't know whether we created God in our own image or whether God created us without quite knowing what he was doing. He believed that God, or whatever brought us here, lives in each of our deeds, in each of our words, and manifests himself in all those things that show us to be more than mere figures of clay. Senor Sempere believed that God lives, to a smaller or greater extent, in books, and that is why he devoted his life to sharing them, to protecting them, and to making sure their pages, like our memories and our desires, are never lost. He believed, and he made me believe it too, that as long as there is one person left in the world who is capable of reading them and experiencing them, a small piece of God, or of life, will remain. I know that my friend would not have liked us to say our farewells to him with prayers and hymns. I know that it would have been enough for him to realize that his friends, as many as those who have come here today to say goodbye, will never forget him. I have no doubt that the Lord, even though old Sempere was not expecting it, will receive our dear friend at his side, and I know that he will live forever in the hearts of all those who are here today, all those who have discovered the magic of books, thanks to him, and all those who, without even knowing him, 
will one day go through the door of his little bookshop, where, as he liked to say, the story has only just begun. May you rest in peace, Sempere, dear friend, and may God give us all the opportunity to honour your memory and feel grateful for the privilege of having known you. An endless silence fell over the graveyard when the priest finished speaking. He retreated a few steps, blessing the coffin, his eyes downcast. At a sign from the chief undertaker, the gravediggers moved forward and slowly lowered the coffin with ropes. I remember the sound as it touched the bottom, and the stifled sobs among the crowd. I remember that I stood there, unable to move, watching the gravediggers cover the tomb with the large slab of marble on which a single word was written, Sempere, the tomb in which his wife Diana had lain buried for twenty-six years. The congregation shuffled away towards the cemetery gates, where they separated into groups, not quite knowing where to go, because nobody wanted to leave the place and abandon poor Senor Sempere. Bartholo and Isabella led the bookseller's son away, one on each side of him. I stayed on until I thought everyone else had left, only then did I dare go up to Sempere's grave. I knelt and put my hand on the marble. See you soon, I murmured. I heard him approaching and knew who it was before I saw him. I got up and turned round. Pedro Vidal offered me his hand and the saddest smile I have ever seen. Aren't you going to shake my hand? he asked. I didn't and a few seconds later Vidal nodded to himself and pulled his hand away. "'What are you doing here?' I spat out. "'Semperi was my friend, too,' replied Vidal. "'I see. And are you here alone?' Vidal looked puzzled. "'Where is she?' I asked. "'Who?' I let out a bitter laugh. Bartholo, who had noticed us, was coming over, looking concerned. "'What did you promise her? To buy her back?' Vidal's eyes hardened. "'You don't know what you're saying, David.' I drew closer until I could feel his breath on my face. Where is she? I insisted. I don't know, said Vidal. Of course, I said, looking away. I was about to walk towards the exit when Vidal grabbed my arm and stopped me. David, wait. Before I realised what I was doing, I turned and hit him as hard as I could. My fist crashed against his face and he fell backwards. I noticed that there was blood on my hand and heard steps hurrying towards me. Two arms caught hold of me and pulled me away from Vidal. For God's sake, Martin, said Buffalo. The bookseller knelt down next to Vidal, who was gasping as blood streamed from his mouth. Buffalo cradled his head and threw me a furious look. I fled, passing some of the people who had been present at the graveside and who had stopped to watch the altercation. I didn't have the courage to look them in the eye. I didn't leave the house for several days, sleeping at odd times and barely eating. At night I would sit in the gallery by the open fire and listen to the silence, hoping to hear footsteps outside the door, thinking that Christina would return, that as soon as she heard about the death of Senor Sempere, she'd come back to me, if only out of compassion, which by now would have been enough for me. When almost a week had gone by since the death of the bookseller, and I realised that Christina was not going to return, I began to visit the study again. I rescued the boss's manuscript from the trunk and started to reread it, savouring every phrase, every paragraph. 
reading it produced in me both nausea and a dark satisfaction. When I thought of the hundred thousand francs that at first had seemed so much, I smiled and reflected that I'd sold myself to that son of a bitch too cheaply. Vanity papered over my bitterness, and pain closed the door of my conscience. In an act of pure arrogance, I reread my predecessor Diego Marlasca's Lux Eterna, and then threw it into the fire. Where he had failed, I would triumph. Where he had lost his way, I would find the path out of the labyrinth. I went back to work on the seventh day. I waited until midnight and sat down at my desk. A clean sheet in the old Underwood typewriter, and the city black behind the window panes. The words and images sprang forth from my hands as if they'd been waiting angrily in the prison of my soul. The pages flowed from me without thought or measure, with nothing more than the desire to bewitch or poison hearts and minds. I stopped thinking about the boss, about his reward or his demands. For the first time in my life I was writing for myself and nobody else. I was writing to set the world on fire and be consumed along with it. I worked every night until I collapsed from exhaustion. I banged the typewriter keys until my fingers bled and fever clouded my vision. One morning in January, when I'd lost all notion of time, I heard someone knocking on the door. I was lying on my bed, my eyes lost in the old photograph of Christina as a small child, walking hand in hand with a stranger along a jetty that reached out into a sea of light. That image seemed to be the only good thing I had left the key to all mysteries. I ignored the knocking for a few minutes, until I heard the voice, and knew she was not going to give up. Open the door, damn you! I know you're there, and I'm not leaving until you open it, or I knock it down. When she saw me, Isabella stepped back and looked horrified. It's only me, Isabella. She pushed me aside and made straight for the gallery, where she flung open the windows. Then she went to the bathroom and started filling the tub. She took my arm and dragged me there, then made me sit on the edge of the bath and examined my eyes, lifting my eyelids with her fingertips and muttering to herself. Without saying a word, she began to remove my shirt. Isabella, I'm not in the mood. What are all these cuts? What have you done to yourself? They're just scratches. I want a doctor to see you. No. Don't you dare say no to me, she replied harshly. You're getting into this bathtub right now. You're going to wash yourself with soap and water, and you're going to have a shave. You have two options. Either you do it or I will. And don't imagine for one second that I won't. I smiled. I know. Do as I say. In the meantime, I'm going to find a doctor. I was about to reply, but she raised her hand to silence me. Don't say another word. If you think you're the only person for whom life is painful, you're wrong. And if you don't mind letting yourself die like a dog, at least have the decency to remember that there are those of us who do care. Although, to tell the truth, I don't see why. Isabella. Into the water, and please remove your trousers and underpants. I know how to take a bath. I'd never have guessed. While Isabella went off in search of a doctor, I submitted to her orders and subjected myself to a baptism of cold water and soap. I hadn't shaved since the funeral, and when I looked in the mirror I was greeted by the face of a wolf. My eyes were bloodshot and my skin had an unhealthy pallor. I put on clean clothes and went to wait in the gallery. Isabella returned twenty minutes later with a physician I thought I had seen in the area once or twice. This is the patient. Pay no attention whatsoever to anything he says to you. He's a liar, Isabella announced. The doctor glanced at me, calibrating the extent of my hostility. It's over to you, doctor, I said. Just imagine I'm not here.
We went to my bedroom, and he began the subtle rituals that form the basis of medical science. He took my blood pressure, listened to my chest, examined my pupils and my mouth, and asked me questions of a mysterious nature. When he inspected the razor cuts Irena Sabino had made on my chest, he raised an eyebrow. What's this? It's a long story, doctor. Did you do it to yourself? I shook my head. I'm going to give you an ointment for the cuts, but I'm afraid you'll be left with some scars. I think that was the idea. He continued with his examination, and I submitted to everything obediently, my eye on Isabella, who was watching me anxiously from the doorway. I understood then how much I had missed her, and how much I appreciated her company. What a fright you gave me, she mumbled with disapproval. The doctor frowned when he saw the raw wounds on the tips of my fingers. He proceeded to bandage them one by one. When did you last eat? I didn't reply. The doctor exchanged glances with Isabella. There is no cause for alarm, but I'd like to see him in my surgery tomorrow at the latest. I'm afraid that won't be possible, doctor, I said. He'll be there, Isabella assured him. In the meantime, I recommend that he begins by eating something warm, first broth and then solids. A lot of water, but no coffee or other stimulants, and above all, he must get lots of rest. Let him go out for a little fresh air and sunshine, but he mustn't overexert himself. He is showing the classic symptoms of exhaustion and dehydration and the beginnings of anemia. Isabella sighed. It's nothing, I remarked. The doctor looked at me, unconvinced, and stood up. Tomorrow afternoon in my surgery at four o'clock. I don't have the correct instruments or environment for a proper examination here. He closed his bag and politely said goodbye. Isabella accompanied him to the door, and I heard them murmuring on the landing for a few minutes. I got dressed again and waited like a good patient, sitting on the bed. I heard the front door close and the doctor's steps as he descended the stairs. I knew that Isabella was in the entrance hall, pausing before coming into the bedroom. When at last she did, I greeted her with a smile. I'm going to prepare something for you to eat. I'm not hungry. I couldn't care less. You're going to eat, and then we're going to go out so that you can get some fresh air. End of story. Isabella prepared a broth for me, to which I added morsels of bread. I then forced myself to swallow it with a cheerful face, although to me it tasted like grit. Eventually I cleaned my bowl and showed it to Isabella, who had been standing on guard duty while I ate. Next she took me to the bedroom, searched for a coat in the wardrobe, equipped me with gloves and a scarf and pushed me towards the front door. When we stepped outside, a cold wind was blowing, but the sky shone with an evening sun that turned the streets the colour of amber. She put her arm in mine and we set off. As if we were engaged, I said. Very funny. We walked to Ciudadella Park and into the gardens surrounding the shade house. When we reached the pond by the large fountain, we sat down on a bench. Thank you, I murmured. Isabella didn't reply. I haven't asked you how you are, I volunteered. That's nothing new. So, how are you? Isabella paused. My parents are delighted that I've returned. They say you've been a good influence. If only they knew. The truth is, we do get on better than before. Not that I see much of them. I spend most of my time in the bookshop. How's Sempere? How is he taking his father's death? Not very well. And how are you taking him? He's a good man, she said. Isabella fell silent and lowered her eyes. He proposed to me, she said after a while. 
couple of days ago, in Els Catragats. I contemplated her profile, serene and robbed of that youthful innocence I had wanted to see in her, and which had probably never been there. And? I finally asked. I've told him I'll think about it. And will you? Isabella's gaze was lost in the fountain. He told me he wanted to have a family. Children. He said we'd live in the apartment above the bookshop. That somehow we'd make a go of it, despite Senor Semperi's debts. Well, you're still young. She tilted her head and looked me in the eye. Do you love him? I asked. She gave a smile that seemed endlessly sad. How do I know? I think so. Although not as much as he thinks he loves me. Sometimes, in difficult circumstances, one can confuse compassion with love, I said. Don't you worry about me. All I ask is that you give yourself some time. We looked at each other, bound by an infinite complicity that needed no words, and I hugged her. Friends, till death us do part. On our way home, we stopped at a grocer's in Calle Comercio to buy some milk and bread. Isabella told me she was going to ask her father to deliver an order of fine foods, and I'd better eat everything up. How are things in the bookshop? I asked. The sales have gone right down. I think people feel sad about coming to the shop because they remember poor Senor Semperi. As things stand, it's not looking good. How are the accounts? Below the waterline. In the weeks I've been working there, I've gone through the ledgers and realised that Senor Semperi, God rest his soul, was a disaster. He'd simply give books to people who couldn't afford them, or he'd lend them out and never get them back. He'd buy collections he knew he wouldn't be able to sell just because the owners had threatened to burn them or throw them away. He supported a whole host of second-rate bards who didn't have a penny to their name by giving them small sums of money. You can imagine the rest. Any creditors inside? Two a day, not counting letters and final demands from the bank. The good news is that we're not short of offers. To buy the place. A couple of sausage merchants from Vic are very interested in the premises. And what does Semperi's son say? He says that pork can be mightier than the sword. Realism isn't his strong point. He says we'll stay afloat and I should have faith. And do you? I have faith in arithmetic, and when I do the sums, they tell me that in two months' time, the bookshop window will be full of chorizo and slabs of bacon. We'll find a solution. Isabella smiled. I was hoping you'd say that. And speaking of unfinished business, please tell me you're no longer working for the boss. I showed her my hands were clean. I'm a free agent once more. She accompanied me up the stairs and was about to say goodbye when she appeared to hesitate. What? I asked her. I'd decided not to tell you, but I'd rather you heard it from me than from someone else. It's about Senor Semperi. We went into the house and sat down in the gallery by the open fire, which Isabella revived by throwing on a couple of logs. The ashes of Marlaska's Lux Eterna were still visible, and my former assistant threw me a glance I could have framed. What were you going to tell me about Semperi? It's something I heard from Don Anancleto, one of the neighbours in the building. He told me that on the afternoon Senor Semperi died, he saw him arguing with someone in the shop. Don Anacleto was on his way back home, and he said that their voices could be heard from the street. Who was he arguing with? It was a woman, quite old. Don Anacleto didn't think he'd ever seen her around there, though he did say she looked vaguely familiar. 
But you never know with Don Anacleto. He likes to chatter on more than he likes sugared almonds. Did he hear what they were arguing about? He thought they were talking about you. About me? Isabella nodded. Semperi's son had gone out for a moment to deliver an order to Calle Canuda. He wasn't away for more than ten or fifteen minutes. When he got back, he found his father lying on the floor behind the counter. Senor Semperi was still breathing, but he was cold. By the time the doctor arrived, it was too late. I felt the whole world collapsing on top of me. I shouldn't have told you, whispered Isabella. No, you did the right thing. Did Don Anacleto say anything else about the woman? Only that he heard them arguing. He thought it was about a book, something she wanted to buy and Senor Semperi didn't want to sell to her. And why did he mention me? I don't understand. Because it was your book, The Steps of Heaven. It was Senor Semperi's only copy in his personal collection and was not for sale. I was filled with a dark certainty. And the book, I began. It's no longer there. It disappeared, Isabella explained. I checked the sales ledger because Senor Semperi always made a note of every book he sold, with the date and the price, and this one wasn't there. Does his son know? No, I haven't told anybody except you. I'm still trying to understand what happened that afternoon in the bookshop, and why. I thought perhaps you might know. I suspect the woman tried to take the book by force, and in the quarrel Senor Semperi suffered a heart attack. That's what happened, I said, and all over a damned book of mine. I could feel my stomach churning. There's something else, said Isabella. What? A few days later, I bumped into Don Anacleto on the stairs, and he told me he'd remembered how he knew that woman. He said that at first he couldn't put a finger on it, but now he was sure he'd seen her many years ago. In the theatre. In the theatre? Isabella nodded. I was silent for a long while. Isabella watched me anxiously. Now I'm not happy about leaving you here. I shouldn't have told you. No, you did the right thing. I'm fine, honestly. Isabella shook her head. I'm staying with you tonight. What about your reputation? It's your reputation that's in danger. I'll just go to my parents' store to phone the bookshop and let them know. There's no need, Isabella. There would be no need if you'd accepted that we live in the twentieth century and had installed a telephone in this mausoleum. I'll be back in quarter of an hour. No arguments. During Isabella's absence, the death of my old friend Semperi began to weigh on my conscience. I recalled how the old bookseller had always told me that books have a soul, the soul of the person who has written them, and of those who have read them and dreamed about them. I realized that until the very last moment he had fought to protect me, giving his own life for a bundle of paper and ink on which, he felt, my soul had been inscribed. When Isabella returned, carrying a bag of delicacies from her parents' shop, she only needed to take one look at me. You know that woman, she said. The woman who killed Semperi. I think so. Irena Sabino. Isn't she the one in the old photographs we found? The actress? I nodded. Why would she want your book? I don't know. Later, after sampling one or two treats from Cangispare, we sat together in the large armchair in front of the hearth. We were both able to fit in, and Isabella leaned her head on my shoulder while we stared at the flames. The other night I dreamed that I had a son, she said. I dreamed that he was calling to me, but I couldn't reach him because I was trapped in a place that was very cold, 
and I couldn't move. He kept calling me, and I couldn't go to him. It was only a dream. It seemed real. Maybe you should write it as a story, I suggested. Isabella shook her head. I've been thinking about that, and I've decided that I'd rather live my life than write about it. Please don't take it badly. I think it's a wise decision. What about you? Are you going to live your life? I'm afraid I've already lived quite a lot of it. What about that woman, Christina? I took a deep breath. Christina has left. She's gone back to her husband. Another wise decision. Isabella pulled away and frowned at me. What? I asked. I think you're mistaken. What about? The other day, Gustavo Bartholo came by and we talked about you. He told me he'd seen Christina's husband, what's his name? Pedro Vidal. That's the one. And Senor Vidal had told him that Christina had gone off with you, that he hadn't seen her or heard from her in over a month. As a matter of fact, I was surprised not to find her here, but I didn't dare ask. Are you sure that's what Bartholo said? Isabella nodded. Now what have I said? She asked in alarm. Nothing. There's something you're not telling me. Christina isn't here. I haven't seen her since the day Senor Sempere died. Where is she, then? I don't know. Little by little we grew silent, curled up in the armchair by the fire, and in the small hours Isabella fell asleep. I put my arm around her and closed my eyes, thinking about all the things she had said and trying to find some meaning. When the light of dawn appeared through the window panes of the gallery, I opened my eyes and saw that Isabella was already awake. Good morning, I said. I've been meditating, she declared. And? I'm thinking about accepting Semperi's proposal. Are you sure? No, she laughed. What will your parents say? They'll be upset, I suppose, but they'll get over it. They would prefer me to marry a prosperous merchant who sold sausages rather than books. But they'll just have to put up with it. It could be worse, I remarked. Isabella agreed. Yes, I could end up with a writer. We looked at one another for a long time until she extracted herself from the armchair. She collected her coat and buttoned it up. Her back turned to me. I must go, she said. Thanks for the company, I replied. Don't let her escape, said Isabella. Search for her, wherever she may be, and tell her you love her, even if it's a lie. We girls like to hear that kind of thing. She turned round and leaned over to brush my lips with hers. Then she squeezed my hand and left without saying goodbye. I spent the rest of that week scouring Barcelona for anyone who might remember having seen Christina over the last month. I visited the places I'd shared with her and traced Vidal's favourite route through cafes, restaurants and elegant shops, all in vain. I showed everyone I met a photograph from the album Christina had left in my house and asked whether they'd seen her recently. Somewhere, I forget where, I came across a person who recognised her and remembered having seen her with Vidal some time or other. Other people even remembered her name, but nobody had seen her in weeks. On the fourth day, I began to suspect that Christina had left the tower house that morning after I went to buy the train tickets and had evaporated off the face of the earth. Then I remembered that Vidal's family kept a room permanently reserved at Hotel España on Calle San Pau, behind the Liceo Theatre. 
It was used whenever a member of the family visited the opera and didn't feel like returning to Pedralbes in the early hours. I knew that Vidal and his father had also used it, at least in their golden years, to enjoy the company of young ladies whose presence in their official residences in Petralbes would have led to undesirable rumours, due either to the low or the high birth of the lady in question. More than once Vidal had offered the room to me when I still lived in Doña Carmen's pension, in case, as he put it, I felt like undressing a damsel somewhere that wasn't quite so alarming. I didn't think Christina would have chosen the hotel room as a refuge, if she knew of its existence, that is but it was the only place left on my list and nowhere else had occurred to me. It was getting dark when I arrived at Hotel España and asked to speak to the manager, presenting myself as Senor Vidal's friend. When I showed him Christina's photograph, the manager, a gentleman who mistook frostiness for discretion, smiled politely and told me that other members of Vidal's staff had already been there a few weeks earlier, asking after that same person, and he had told them what he was telling me now, he had never seen that lady in the hotel. I thanked him for his icy kindness and walked away in defeat. As I passed the glass doors that led into the dining room, I thought I registered a familiar profile. The boss was sitting at one of the tables, the only guest there, eating what looked like lumps of sugar. I was about to make a quick getaway when he turned and waved at me, smiling. I cursed my luck and waved back. He signalled for me to join him. I walked through the dining room door, dragging my feet. What a lovely surprise to see you here, dear friend. I was just thinking about you, said Corelli. I shook hands with him reluctantly. I thought you were out of town, I said. I came back sooner than planned. Would you care for a drink? I declined. He asked me to sit down at his table, and I obeyed. The boss wore his usual three-piece suit of black wool and a red silk tie. As always, he was impeccably attired, but something didn't quite add up. It took me a few seconds to notice what it was. The angel brooch was not in his lapel. Corelli followed the direction of my gaze. Alas, I have lost it, and I don't know where, he explained. I hope it wasn't too valuable. Its value was purely sentimental. But let's talk about more important matters. How are you, my dear friend? I've missed our conversations enormously, despite our occasional disagreements. It's difficult to find a good conversationalist. You overrate me, Senor Corelli. On the contrary. A brief silence followed, those bottomless eyes drilling into mine. I told myself that I preferred him when he embarked on his usual banal conversations. When he stopped speaking, his face seemed to change, and the air thickened around him. Are you staying here? I asked to break the silence. No, I am still in the house by Guell Park. I had arranged to meet a friend here this afternoon, but he seems to be late. The manners of some people are deplorable. There can't be many people who dare stand you up, Senor Corelli. The boss looked me straight in the eye. Not many. In fact, the only person I can think of is you. The boss took a sugar lump and dropped it into his cup. A second lump followed, and then a third. He tasted the coffee and added four more lumps. Then he picked up yet another and popped it in his mouth. I love sugar, he said. So I see. You haven't told me anything about our project, Martin, dear friend, he cut in. 
Is there a problem? I winced. It's almost finished, I said. The boss's face lit up with a smile I tried to ignore. That is wonderful news. When will I be able to see it? In a couple of weeks, I need to do some revisions, pruning and finishing touches more than anything else. Can we set a date? If you like. How about Friday? That's the 23rd. Will you accept an invitation to dine and celebrate the success of our venture? Friday the 23rd of January was exactly two weeks away. Fine, I agreed. That's confirmed, then. He raised his sugar-filled cup as if he were drinking a toast and downed the contents in one. How about you? he asked casually. What brings you here? I was looking for someone. Someone I know? No. And have you found the person? No. The boss savoured my silence. I get the impression that I am keeping you here against your will, dear friend. I'm just a little tired, that's all. Then I won't take up any more of your time. Sometimes I forget that although I enjoy your company, perhaps mine is not to your liking. I smiled meekly and took the opportunity to stand up. I saw myself reflected in his pupils, a pale doll trapped in a dark well. Take care of yourself, Martine. Please. I will. I took my leave with a quick nod and headed for the exit. As I walked away, I heard him putting another sugar lump in his mouth and crunching it between his teeth. When I turned into the Ramblas, I noticed that the canopies outside the Lithea were lit up and a long row of cars, guarded by a small regiment of chauffeurs in uniform, was waiting on the pavement. The posters announced Cosi fan tutte, and I wondered if Vidal had felt like forsaking his castle to go along. I scanned the circle of drivers that had formed on the central pavement, and soon spotted Pep among them. I beckoned him over. What are you doing here, Senor Martin? Where is she? Senor Vidal is inside watching the performance. Not he, she, Cristina, Senora de Vidal, where is she? Poor Pep swallowed hard. I don't know. Nobody knows. He told me that Vidal had spent weeks attempting to find her, and that his father, the patriarch of the clan, had even hired various members of the police force to try to discover where she was. At first, Senor Vidal thought that she was with you. Hasn't she called or sent a letter, a telegram? No, Senor Martin, I swear. We're all very worried. And Senor Vidal, well, I've never seen him like this in all the years I've known him. This is the first time he's gone out since Senorita Cristina, I mean, Senora Cristina. Do you remember whether Cristina said something, anything, before she left Villa Helios? Well, said Pep, lowering his voice to a whisper. You could hear her arguing with Senor Vidal. She seemed sad to me. She spent a lot of time by herself. She wrote letters, and every day she went to the post office in Paseo Reina Elisenda to post them. Did you ever speak to her alone? One day, shortly before she left, Senor Vidal asked me to drive her to the doctor. Was she ill? She couldn't sleep. The doctor prescribed laudanum. Did she say anything to you on the way there? Pep hesitated. She asked after you, in case I'd heard from you or seen you. Is that all? She just seemed very sad. She started to cry. And when I asked her what the matter was, she said she missed her father, Senor Manuel. I suddenly understood and cursed myself for not having thought of it sooner. Pep looked at me in surprise and asked me why I was smiling. 
Do you know where she is? He asked. I think so, I murmured. I thought I could hear a voice calling from the other side of the street and glimpsed a familiar figure in the Lithéo foyer. Vidal hadn't even managed to last the first act. Pep turned to attend his master's call, and before he had time to tell me to hide, I had already disappeared into the night. Even from afar it looked like bad news. The ember of a cigarette in the blue of the night, silhouettes leaning against a dark wall, the spiralling breath of three figures guarding the main door of the tower house. Inspector Victor Grandes, accompanied by his two guard dogs, Marcos and Castello, led the welcome committee. It wasn't hard to work out that they'd found Alicia Masca's body at the bottom of her pool in Saria, and that my place on their blacklist had gone up a few points. The minute I caught sight of them, I stopped and melted into the shadows, observing them for a few seconds to make sure they hadn't noticed me. I was only some fifty metres away. I could distinguish Grandis's profile in the thin light shed by the street lamp on the wall. Retreating into the darkness, I slipped into the first alleyway I could find, disappearing into the mass of passages and arches of the Ribera Quarter. Ten minutes later, I reached the main entrance to the Estación de Francia. The ticket offices were closed, but I could still see a few trains lined up by the platforms under the large vault of glass and steel. I checked the timetables. Just as I had feared, there were no departures scheduled until the following day, and I couldn't risk returning home and bumping into Grandes and co. Something told me that on this occasion my visit to police headquarters would include full board, and not even the good offices of the lawyer Senor Valera would get me out of there as easily as the last time. I decided to spend the night in a cheap hotel opposite the old stock exchange in Plaza Palacio. Legend had it that the building was inhabited by a number of walking cadavers, one-time speculators whose greed and poor arithmetic skills had exploded in their faces. I chose this dump because I imagined that not even the fates would come looking for me there. I registered under the name of Antonio Miranda and paid for the room in advance. The receptionist, who looked like a mollusk, seemed to be embedded in his cubbyhole, which also served as a towel rack and souvenir shop. He handed me the key, a bar of L-seed soap that stank of bleach and looked as if it had already been used, and informed me that if I wanted female company he could send up a serving girl nicknamed Cockeye as soon as she returned from a home visit. She'll make you good as new, he assured me. I turned down the offer, claiming the onset of lumbago, and hurried up the stairs wishing him good night. The room had the appearance and shape of a sarcophagus. One quick look was enough to persuade me that I should lie on the old bed fully clothed, rather than getting under the sheets to fraternise with whatever was growing there. I covered myself with the threadbare blanket I found in the wardrobe, which at least smelled of mothballs, and turned off the light, trying to imagine that I was actually in the sort of suite that someone with a hundred thousand francs in the bank could afford. I barely slept all night. I left the hotel halfway through the morning and made my way to the station, where I bought a first-class ticket, hoping I'd be able to sleep on the train to make up for the dreadful night I'd spent in that dive. Seeing that there were still twenty minutes to go before the train's departure, I went over to the row of public telephones. I gave the operator the number Ricardo Salvador had given me, that of his downstairs neighbour. "'I'd like to speak to Don Emilio, please.' "'Speaking?' My name is David Martin. I'm a friend of Senor Ricardo Salvador. He told me I could call him at this number in an emergency. Let's see. Can you wait a moment while we get him? I looked at the station clock. Yes, I'll wait. Thanks.
More than three minutes went by before I heard the sound of footsteps, and then Ricardo Salvador's voice. Martin, are you all right? Yes, thank goodness. I read about Rures in the newspaper and was very concerned about you. Where are you? Senor Salvador, I don't have much time now. I need to leave Barcelona. Are you sure you're all right? Yes, listen. Alicia Marlaska is dead. The widow? Dead. A long silence. I thought I could hear Salvador sobbing and cursed myself for having broken the news to him so bluntly. Are you still there? Yes. I'm calling you to warn you. You must be careful. Irena Sabino is alive and she's been following me. There is someone with her. I think it's Jaco. Jaco Colbera. I'm not sure it's him. I think they know I'm on their trail and they're trying to silence all the people I've been speaking to. I think you were right. Why would Jaco return now? Salvador asked. It doesn't make sense. I don't know. I have to go now. I just wanted to warn you. Don't worry about me. If that bastard comes to visit me, I'll be ready for him. I've been ready for twenty-five years. The station master blew the whistle. The train was about to leave. Don't trust anyone, do you hear me? I'll call you as soon as I get back. Thanks for calling, Martin. Be careful. The train was beginning to glide past the platform as I took refuge in my compartment and collapsed on the seat. I abandoned myself to the flow of tepid air from the heating and the gentle rocking of the train. We left the city behind us, crossing the forest of factories and chimneys, and escaping the shroud of scarlet light that covered it. Slowly the wasteland of railway depots and trains abandoned on sidings dissolved into an endless plain of fields, woodlands, rivers and hills crowned with large run-down houses and watchtowers. The occasional covered wagon or hamlet peered through a bank of mist. Small railway stations slipped by. Bell towers and farmhouses appeared like mirages in the distance. At some point in the journey I fell asleep, and when I woke again the landscape had changed dramatically. We were now passing through steep valleys with rocky crags rising between lakes and streams. The train skirted great forests that climbed soaring mountains. After a while, the tangle of hills and tunnels cut into the rock gave way to a large open valley with never-ending pastures, where herds of wild horses galloped across the snow, and small stone villages appeared in the distance. The peaks of the Pyrenees rose up on the other side, their snow-covered slopes set alight by the amber glow of evening. In front of us was a jumble of houses and buildings clustered around a hill. The ticket inspector put his head through the door of my compartment and smiled. Next stop, Puig he announced. The train stopped and let out a blast of steam that inundated the platform. When I got out I was enveloped in a thick mist that smelled of static. Shortly afterwards I heard the stationmaster's bell and the train set off again. As the coaches filed past, the shape of the station began to emerge around me like an apparition. I was alone on the platform. A fine curtain of snow was falling, and to the west a red sun peeped below the vault of clouds, scattering the snow with tiny bright embers. I went over to the stationmaster's office and knocked on the glass. He looked up, opened the door, and gazed at me distractedly. Could you tell me how to find a place called Villa San Antonio? He raised an eyebrow. The sanatorium? I think so. 
The station master adopted the pensive air of someone trying to work out how best to offer directions to a stranger. Then, with the help of a whole catalogue of gestures and expressions, he came up with the following. You have to walk right through the village, past the church square, until you reach the lake. On the other side of the lake, there's a long avenue with large houses on either side that leads to Paseo de la Rigolisa. There, on the corner, you'll find a three-story house surrounded by a garden. That's the sanatorium. And do you know of anywhere I might find accommodation? On the way, you'll pass the Hotel del Lago. Tell them Sebas sent you. Thank you. Good luck. I walked through the lonely streets of the village beneath the falling snow, looking for the outline of the church tower. On the way, I passed a few locals who bobbed their heads and looked at me suspiciously. When I reached the square, two men who were unloading coal from a cart pointed me in the right direction. And a couple of minutes later, I found myself walking down a road that bordered a large frozen lake, surrounded by stately-looking mansions with pointed towers. The great expanse of white was studded with small rowing boats trapped in the ice, and around it, like a ribbon, ran a promenade punctuated by benches and trees. I walked over to the edge and gazed at the frozen lake spread out at my feet. The ice must have been almost twenty centimetres thick, and in some places it shone like opaque glass, hinting at the current of black water that flowed under its shell. The Hotel del Lago, a two-storey house painted dark red, stood at the end of the lake. Before continuing on my way, I stopped to book a room for two nights and paid in advance. The receptionist informed me that the hotel was almost empty, and I could take my pick of rooms. Room 101 has spectacular views of the sunrise over the lake, he suggested. But if you prefer a room facing north, I have... You choose, I cut in, indifferent to the majestic beauty of the landscape. Then room 101 it is. In the summer, it's the honeymooner's favourite. He handed me the keys of the nuptial suite and informed me of the hours for dinner. I told him I'd return later and asked if Villa San Antonio was far from there. The receptionist adopted the same expression I'd seen on the face of the stationmaster, first shaking his head, then giving me a friendly smile. It's quite near. About ten minutes' walk. If you take the promenade at the end of this street, you'll see it a short distance away. You can't miss it. Ten minutes later, I was standing by the gates of a large garden strewn with dead leaves half buried in the snow. Beyond the garden, Villa San Antonio rose up like a sombre sentinel wrapped in a halo of golden light that radiated from the windows. As I crossed the garden, my heart was pounding, and my hands perspired despite the bitter cold. I walked up the stairs to the main door. The entrance hall was covered in black and white floor tiles like a chessboard, and led to a staircase at the far end. There I saw a young girl in a nurse's uniform, holding the hand of a man who was trembling, and seemed to be eternally suspended between two steps, as if his whole life had suddenly become trapped in that moment. "'Good afternoon,' said a voice to my right. Her eyes were black and severe, her features sharp, without a trace of warmth, and she had the serious air of one who has learnt not to expect anything but bad news. She must have been in her early fifties, and although she wore the same uniform as the young nurse, everything about her exuded authority and rank. "'Good afternoon. I'm looking for someone called Christina Sanier.' I have reason to believe she's staying here. The woman observed me without batting an eyelid. Nobody stays here, sir. This place is not a hotel or a guest house. I'm sorry, I've just come on a long journey in search of this person. Don't apologise, said the nurse. May I ask if you're family or a close friend? My name is David Martin. 
Is Christina Sanyer here, please? The nurse's expression softened, and there followed the hint of a smile. I took a deep breath. I'm Teresa, the sister in charge of night duty. If you'd be so kind as to follow me, Senor Martin, I'll take you to the office of Dr. San Juan. How is Senorita Sanyer? Can I see her? Another faint and impenetrable smile. This way, please. The rectangular room had four blue walls but no windows, and was lit by two lamps that hung from the ceiling, giving off a metallic light. The only three objects in the room were an empty table and two chairs. It was cold, and the air smelled of disinfectant. The nurse had described the room as an office, but after ten minutes of waiting on my own, anchored to one of the chairs, all I could see was a cell. Even though the door was shut, I could hear voices, sometimes isolated shouts on the other side of the wall. I was beginning to lose all notion of how long I'd been there when the door opened and a man came in. He was in his mid-thirties and wore a white coat. His smile was as cold as the air that filled the room. Dr. San Juan, I imagined. He walked round the table and sat on the other chair, planting his hands on the desk and observing me with vague curiosity for a few moments. I realise you must be tired after your journey, but I'd like to know why Senor Pedro Vidal isn't here, he said at last. He wasn't able to come. The doctor kept his gaze fixed on me, waiting. His eyes were cold, and he seemed like the type of person who listens but does not hear. Can I see her? You can't see anyone unless you tell me the truth about why you're here. I surrendered. I hadn't travelled a hundred and fifty kilometres just to lie. My name is Martin, David Martin. I'm a friend of Christina Sanier. Here we call her Senora de Vidal. I don't care what you call her, I want to see her, now. The doctor sighed. Are you the writer? I stood up impatiently. What sort of place is this? Why can't I see her? Sit down, please, I beg you. He pointed to the chair and waited for me to sit down again. May I ask, when was the last time you saw her or spoke to her? Just over a month ago, I replied. Why? Do you know anyone who might have seen or spoken to her since then? No, I don't know. What's going on? The doctor put his fingertips to his lips, measuring his words. Senor Martin, I'm afraid I have bad news. I felt a knot in the pit of my stomach. What's wrong with her? The doctor did not reply, and for the first time I thought I glimpsed the shadow of a doubt in his eyes. I don't know, he said. We walked along a short corridor flanked by metal doors. Dr. San Juan went in front of me, holding a bunch of keys in his hands. As we passed, I thought I could hear voices whispering, suppressed laughter and sobs. The room was at the end of the corridor. The doctor opened the door but stopped at the threshold, his expression unreadable. Fifteen minutes, he said. I went in and heard the doctor shut the door behind me. Before me lay a room with a high ceiling and white walls reflected in a floor of shining tiles. On one side stood a bed, a metallic frame surrounded by a white gauze curtain. It was empty. Large French windows looked out over the snowy garden, trees, and in the distance the outline of the lake. I didn't notice her until I'd taken a few steps into the room. She was sitting in an armchair by the window wearing a white nightdress, her hair up in a plait. I went round in front of her and looked straight at her, but her eyes didn't move. 
I knelt down next to her, but she didn't even blink. I put my hand over hers, but she didn't move a single muscle. Then I noticed the bandages covering her arms, from her wrists to her elbows, and the straps that tied her to the chair. I stroked her cheek, gathering a tear that trickled down her face. Christina, I whispered. Her eyes were blank. She seemed completely unaware of my presence. I brought a chair over and sat opposite her. It's David, I murmured. For a quarter of an hour, we remained like that, not speaking, her hand in mine, her eyes lost, and my questions unanswered. At some point I heard the door open again and felt someone taking me gently by the arm and pulling me away. It was Dr. San Juan. I let myself be led to the corridor without offering any resistance. The doctor shut the door and took me back to his freezing office. I collapsed into a chair, unable to utter a single word. Would you like me to leave you alone for a few minutes? he asked. I nodded. The doctor left the room, closing the door behind him. I stared at my right hand, which was shaking, and clenched my fist. I hardly felt the cold of that room, or heard the shouts and voices that filtered through the door. I only knew that I needed some air, and had to get out of that place. Dr. San Juan found me in the hotel dining room, sitting by the fire next to a plate of food I hadn't touched. There was nobody else there except for a maid who was going round the deserted tables, polishing the cutlery. Outside it had grown dark, and the snow was still falling, like a dusting of powdered blue glass. The doctor walked over to my table and smiled at me. I thought I'd find you here, he said. All visitors end up in this hotel. It's where I spent my first night in the village when I arrived ten years ago. What room were you given? It's supposed to be the newlywed's favourite, with views over the lake. Don't you believe it? That's what they say about all the rooms. Away from the sanatorium and without his white coat, Dr. San Juan looked more relaxed, even friendly. I hardly recognised you without your uniform, I remarked. Madsen is like the army. The cowl maketh the monk, he replied. How are you feeling? I'm all right. I see. I missed you earlier, when I went back to the office to look for you. I needed some air. I understand. I was hoping you wouldn't be affected quite so much. Why? Because I need you. Or rather, Christina needs you. I gave a deep sigh. You must think I'm a coward, I said. The doctor shook his head. How long has she been like this? Weeks. Practically since she arrived here. And she's getting steadily worse. Is she aware of where she is? It's hard to tell, the doctor replied with a shrug. What happened to her? Dr. San Juan exhaled. She was found four weeks ago, not far from here, in the village graveyard, lying on her father's grave. She was delirious and suffering from hypothermia. They brought her to the sanatorium because one of the civil guards recognized her from last year when she spent a few months here because of her father. A lot of people in the village knew her. We admitted her and she was kept under observation for a night or two. She was dehydrated and had probably not slept in days. Every now and then she regained consciousness, and when she did, she spoke about you. She said you were in great danger. She made me swear I wouldn't call anyone, not even her husband, until she was capable of doing so herself. 
Even so, why didn't you let Vidal know what had happened? I would have, but... You'll think this is absurd. What? I was convinced that she was fleeing from something, and thought it was my duty to help her. Fleeing from what? I'm not sure, he said with an ambiguous expression. What is it you're not telling me? I'm just a doctor. There are things I don't understand. What things? Dr. San Juan smiled nervously. Christina thinks that something or someone has got inside her and wants to destroy her. Who? I only know that she thinks it has something to do with you and that it frightens her. That's why I think nobody else can help her. It's also why I didn't let Vidal know, as I ought to have done. Because I knew that sooner or later you would turn up here. He looked at me with a strange mixture of pity and despair. I'm fond of her too, Senor Martin. The months Christina spent visiting her father, we ended up being good friends. I don't suppose she talked to you about me. There was no reason why she should. It was a very difficult time for her. She confided a lot of things in me, and I in her. Things I've never told anyone else. In fact, I even proposed to her. So you see, even the doctors here are slightly nuts. Of course, she refused me. I don't know why I'm telling you this. But she'll be all right again, won't she, Doctor? She'll recover. Dr. San Juan turned his head toward the fire. I hope so, he replied. I want to take her away from here. The doctor raised his eyebrows. Take her away? Where to? Home. Senor Martin, let me be frank. Aside from the fact that you're not a relative, nor indeed the patient's husband, which is a legal requirement, Christina is in no fit state to go anywhere. She's better off here with you, locked up in a rambling old house, tied to a chair and full of drugs. Don't tell me you've proposed to her again. The doctor observed me carefully, ignoring the offence my words had clearly caused him. Senor Martin, I'm glad you're here because I believe that together we can help Christina. I think your presence will allow her to come out of the place into which she has retreated. I believe it because the only word she has uttered in the last two weeks is your name. Whatever happened to her... I think it had something to do with you. The doctor was watching me as if he expected something from me, something that would answer all his questions. I thought she had abandoned me, I began. We were about to run away together, leaving everything behind. I'd gone out for a moment to buy the train tickets and do an errand. I wasn't away for more than ninety minutes, but when I returned home, Christina had left. Did anything happen before she left? Did you have an argument? I bit my lip. I wouldn't call it an argument. What would you call it? I caught her looking through some papers relating to my work, and I think she was offended by what she might have taken as a lack of trust. Was it something important? No, just a manuscript, a draft. May I ask what type of manuscript it was? I hesitated. A fable. For children? Let's say for a family audience. I see. No, I don't think you do. There was no argument. Christina was slightly annoyed because I wouldn't let her have a look, but that was all. When I left, she was fine, packing a few things. That manuscript is not important. The doctor acquiesced, more out of courtesy than conviction. Could it be that while you were out, someone else visited her? I was the only one who knew she was there. Can you think of any reason why she would have decided to leave the house before you returned? No, why? It's only a question, Senor Martin. 
I'm trying to understand what happened between the moment you last saw her and her appearance here. Did she say what or who had got inside her? It's just a manner of speaking, Senor Martin. Nothing has got inside Christina. It's not unusual for patients who have suffered a traumatic experience to feel the presence of dead relatives or imaginary people, or even to disappear into their own minds and close every door to the outside world. It's an emotional response, a form of self-defense against feelings or emotions that seem unacceptable. But you mustn't worry about that now. What matters, and what's going to help, is that if there is anyone who is important to her right now, that person is you. From what Christina confided in me at that time, I know that she loves you, Senor Martin. She loves you as she's never loved anyone else, and certainly as she'll never love me. That's why I'm asking you to help me. Don't let yourself be blinded by fear or resentment. Help me, because we both want the same thing. We both want Christina to be able to leave this place. I felt ashamed. I'm sorry if the doctor raised his hand to silence me. Then he stood up and put on his overcoat. I'll see you tomorrow, he said. Thank you, doctor. Thank you for coming here. The following morning I left the hotel just as the sun was beginning to rise over the frozen lake. A group of children was playing by the shore, throwing stones at the hull of a small boat wedged in the ice. It had stopped snowing, and white mountains were visible in the distance. Large clouds paraded across the sky like monumental cities built of mist. I reached Villa San Antonio shortly before nine o'clock. Dr. San Juan was waiting for me in the garden with Christina. They were sitting in the sun, and the doctor held Christina's hand as he spoke to her. She barely glanced at him. When he saw me crossing the garden, he beckoned me over to join them. He had kept a chair for me opposite Christina. I sat down and looked at her, her eyes on mine without seeing me. Christina, look who's here, said the doctor. I took Christina's hand and moved closer to her. Speak to her, said the doctor. I nodded lost in her absent gaze, but could find no words. The doctor stood up and left us alone. I saw him disappear into the sanatorium, but not without first asking a nurse to keep a close eye on us. Ignoring the presence of the nurse, I pulled my chair even closer to Christina's. I brushed her hair from her forehead, and she smiled. Do you remember me? I asked. I could see my reflection in her eyes, but didn't know whether she could see me or hear my voice. The doctor says you'll get better soon, and we'll be able to go home or wherever you like. I'll leave the tower house, and we'll go far away, just as you wanted, a place where nobody will know us, and nobody will care who we are or where we're from. Her hands were covered with long woolen gloves that masked the bandages on her arms. She had lost weight, and there were deep lines on her skin. Her lips were cracked and her eyes dull and lifeless. All I could do was smile and stroke her cheek and her forehead, talking non-stop, telling her how much I'd missed her and how I'd looked for her everywhere. We spent a couple of hours like that, until the doctor returned and Christina was taken indoors. I stayed there, sitting in the garden, not knowing where else to go, until I saw Dr. San Juan reappear at the door. He came over and sat down beside me. She didn't say a word, I said. 
I don't think she was even aware that I was here. You're wrong, my friend, he replied. This is a long process, but I can assure you that your presence helps her. A lot. I accepted the doctor's meagre reassurance and kind-hearted lie. We'll try again tomorrow, he said. It was only midday. And what am I going to do until tomorrow? I asked him. Aren't you a writer? Then write. Write something for her. I walked round the lake back to the hotel. The receptionist had told me where to find the only bookshop in the village, and I was able to buy some blank sheets of paper and a fountain pen that must have been there since time immemorial. Thus equipped, I locked myself in my room. I moved the table over to the window and asked for a flask of coffee. I spent almost an hour gazing at the lake and the mountains in the distance before writing a single word. I remembered the old photograph Christina had given me, that image she had never been able to place of a girl walking along a wooden jetty that stretched out to the sea. I imagined myself walking down that pier, my steps following behind her, and slowly the words began to flow and the outline of a story emerged. I knew I was going to write the story that Christina could never remember, the story that had led her as a child to walk over those shimmering waters holding on to a stranger's hand. I would write the tale of a memory that never was, the memory of a stolen life. The images and the light that began to appear between sentences took me back to the old shadowy Barcelona that had shaped us both. I wrote until the sun had set and there was not a drop of coffee left in the flask, until the frozen lake was lit up by a blue moon and my eyes and hands were aching. I let the pen drop and pushed aside the sheets of paper lying on the table. When the receptionist came to knock on my door to ask if I was coming down for dinner, I didn't hear him. I had fallen fast asleep, for once dreaming and believing that words, even my own, had the power to heal. Four days passed with the same rhythm. I rose at dawn and went out onto the balcony to watch the sun tint with scarlet the lake at my feet. I would arrive at the sanatorium around half-past eight in the morning, and usually found Dr. San Juan sitting on the entrance steps, gazing at the garden with a steaming cup of coffee in his hands. Do you never sleep, Doctor? I would ask. No more than you, he replied. Around nine o'clock, the doctor would take me to Christina's room and open the door, then leave us. I always found her sitting in the same armchair, facing the window. I would bring over a chair and take her hand. She was barely aware of my presence. Then I would read out the pages I'd written for her the night before. Every day I started again from the beginning. Sometimes when I interrupted my reading and looked at her, I would be surprised to discover the hint of a smile on her lips. I spent the day with her until the doctor returned in the evening and asked me to leave. Then I would trudge back to the hotel through the snow, eat some dinner, and go up to my room to continue writing until I was overcome by exhaustion. The days ceased to have a name. When I went into Christina's room on the fifth day, as I did every morning, the armchair in which she was usually waiting for me was empty. I looked around anxiously and found her on the floor, curled up in a ball in the corner, clasping her knees, her face covered with tears. When she saw me, she smiled, and I realized that she had recognized me. I knelt down next to her and hugged her. 
I don't remember ever having been as happy as I was during those miserable seconds when I felt her breath on my face and saw that a glimmer of light had returned to her eyes. Where have you been? she asked. That afternoon, Dr. San Juan gave me permission to take her out for an hour. We walked down to the lake and sat on a bench. She started to tell me a dream she'd had about a child who lived in the dark maze of a town in which the streets and buildings were alive and fed on the souls of its inhabitants. In her dream, as in the story I had been reading to her, the girl managed to escape and came to a jetty that stretched out over an endless sea. She was holding the hand of the faceless stranger with no name, who had saved her, and who now went with her to the very end of the wooden platform, where someone was waiting for her, someone she would never see, because her dream, like the story I had been reading to her, was unfinished. Christina had a vague recollection of Villa San Antonio and Dr. San Juan. She blushed when she told me she thought he'd proposed to her a week ago. Time and space seemed to be confused in her mind. Sometimes she thought that her father had been admitted to one of the rooms and she'd come to visit him. A moment later she couldn't remember how she'd got there, and at times she ceased to care. She remembered that I'd gone out to buy the train tickets and referred to the morning in which she had disappeared as if it were just the previous day. Sometimes she confused me with Vidal and asked me to forgive her. At others, fear cast a shadow over her face and she began to tremble. He's getting closer, she would say. I have to go before he sees you. Then she would sink into a deep silence, unaware of my presence, unaware of the world itself, as if something had dragged her to some remote and inaccessible place. After a few days, the certainty that Christina had lost her mind began to affect me deeply. My initial hope became tinged with bitterness, and on occasions, when I returned at night to my hotel cell, I felt that old pit of darkness and hatred which I had thought forgotten opening up inside me. Dr. San Juan, who watched over me with the same care and tenacity with which he treated his patients, had warned me that this would happen. Don't give up hope, my friend, he would say. We're making great progress. Have faith. I nodded meekly and returned day after day to the sanatorium to take Christina out for a stroll as far as the lake and listen to the dreamed memories she'd already described dozens of times but which she discovered anew every day. Each day she would ask me where I'd been, why I hadn't come back to fetch her, and why I'd left her alone. Each day she looked at me from her invisible cage and asked me to hold her tight. Each day, when I said goodbye to her, she asked me if I loved her, and I always gave her the same reply. I'll always love you, I would say. Always. One night I was woken by the sound of someone knocking on my door. It was three in the morning. I stumbled over in a daze and found one of the nurses from the sanatorium standing in the doorway. Dr. San Juan has asked me to come and fetch you. What's happened? Ten minutes later I was walking through the gates of Villa San Antonio. The screams could be heard from the garden. Christina had apparently locked the door of her room from the inside. Dr. San Juan, who looked as if he hadn't slept for a week, and two male nurses were trying to force the door open. Inside, Christina could be heard shouting and banging on the walls, knocking down furniture as if she were destroying everything she could find. "'Who's in there with her?' I asked, petrified. "'Nobody,' replied the doctor. "'But she's speaking to someone,' I protested. "'She's alone.' 
An orderly rushed up, carrying a large crowbar. It's the only thing I could find, he said. The doctor nodded, and the orderly levered the crowbar between the door and the frame. How was she able to lock herself in? I asked. I don't know. For the first time, I thought I saw fear in the doctor's face, and he avoided my eyes. The porter was about to force the door when suddenly there was silence on the other side. Christina? called the doctor. There was no reply. The door finally gave way and flew open with a bang. I followed the doctor into the room. It was dark. The window was open and an icy wind was blowing. The chairs, tables and armchair had been knocked over and the walls were stained with an irregular line of what looked like black ink. It was blood. There was no trace of Christina. The male nurses ran out to the balcony and scanned the garden for footprints in the snow. The doctor looked right and left, searching for Christina. Then we heard laughter coming from the bathroom. I went to the door and opened it. The floor was scattered with bits of glass. Christina was sitting on the tiles, leaning against the metal bathtub like a broken doll. Her hands and feet were bleeding, covered in cuts and splinters of glass, and her blood still trickled down the cracks in the mirror she had destroyed with her fists. I put my arms around her and searched her eyes. She smiled. I didn't let him in, she said. Who? He wanted me to forget, but I didn't let him in, she repeated. The doctor knelt down beside me and examined the wounds covering Christina's body. Please, he murmured, pushing me aside. Not now. One of the male nurses had rushed to fetch a stretcher. I helped him lift Christina onto it and held her hand as they wheeled her to a treatment room. There, Dr. San Juan injected her with a sedative, and in a matter of seconds her consciousness stole away. I stayed by her side, looking into her eyes until they became empty mirrors, and one of the nurses led me gently from the room. I stood there in the middle of the dark corridor that smelled of disinfectant, my hands and clothes stained with blood. I leaned against the wall and then slid to the floor. Christina woke up the following morning to find herself lying on a bed bound with leather straps, locked up in a windowless room with no other light than the pale glow from a bulb on the ceiling. I had spent the night in a corner, sitting on a chair observing her, with no notion of time passing. Suddenly she opened her eyes and grimaced at the stabbing pain from the wounds that covered her arms. David, she called out. I'm here, I replied. When I reached the bed, I leaned over so that she could see my face and the anemic smile I'd rehearsed for her. I can't move. They've strapped you down. It's for your own good. As soon as the doctor comes, he'll take them off. You take them off. I can't. It must be the doctor. Please, she begged. Christina, it's better. Please. I saw pain and fear in her eyes, but above all, a lucidity and a presence that had not been there in all the days I had visited her in that place. She was herself again. I untied the first two straps which crossed over her shoulders and waist and stroked her face. She was shaking. Are you cold? She shook her head. Do you want me to call the doctor? She shook her head again. David, look at me. I sat on the edge of the bed and met her gaze. You must destroy it, she said. I don't understand. You must destroy it. What must I destroy? The book. Christina, I'd better call the doctor. No, listen to me. She grabbed my hand. The morning you went to buy the tickets, do you remember? I went up to your study again and opened the trunk. I took a breath. I found the manuscript and began to read it. It's just a fable, Christina. Don't lie to me. I've read it, David. 
at least enough to know that I had to destroy it. You don't need to worry about that now. I told you, I've abandoned the manuscript. But it hasn't abandoned you. I tried to burn it. For a moment I let go of her hand when I heard those words, repressing the surge of anger I felt when I remembered the burned matches I found on the floor of the study. You tried to burn it. But I couldn't, she muttered. There was someone else in the house. There was no one in the house, Christina, nobody. As soon as I lit the match and held it close to the manuscript, I sensed him behind me. I felt a blow to the back of my neck, and then I fell. Who hit you? It was all very dark, as if the daylight had suddenly vanished. I turned round, but could only see his eyes. Like the eyes of a wolf. Christina, he took the manuscript from my hands and put it back in the trunk. Christina, you're not well. Let me call a doctor. You're not listening to me. I smiled at her and kissed her on the forehead. Of course I'm listening to you, but there was no one else in the house. She closed her eyes and tilted her head, moaning as if my words were like daggers cutting her inside. I'm going to call the doctor. I bent over to kiss her again and then stood up. I went towards the door, feeling her eyes on my back. Coward, she said. When I came back to the room with Dr. San Juan, Christina had undone the last strap and was staggering round the room towards the door, leaving bloody footprints on the white tiles. We laid her back on the bed and held her down. Christina shouted and fought with such anger it made my blood freeze. The noise alerted the other staff. An orderly helped us restrain her while the doctor tied the straps. Once she was immobilized, the doctor looked at me severely. I'm going to sedate her again. Stay here and this time don't even think of untying her straps. I was left alone with her for a moment, but could not calm her. Christina went on fighting to escape. I held her face and tried to catch her eye. Christina, please, she spat at me. Go away. The doctor returned with a nurse who carried a metal tray with a syringe, dressings and a glass bottle containing a yellowish solution. Leave the room, he ordered. I went to the doorway. The nurse held Christina against the bed, and the doctor injected the sedative into her arm. Christina's shrieks pierced the room. I covered my ears and went out into the corridor. Coward, I told myself. Coward. Beyond Villa San Antonio, a tree-lined path led out of the village, following an irrigation channel. The framed map in the hotel dining room bestowed on it the sugary name of Lover's Lane. That afternoon, after leaving the sanatorium, I ventured down the gloomy path, which was more suggestive of loneliness than romance. I walked for about half an hour without meeting a soul, leaving the village behind, until the sharp outline of Villa San Antonio and the large rambling houses that surrounded the lake were small cardboard cutouts on the horizon. I sat on one of the benches dotted along the path and watched the sun setting at the other end of Cerdania Valley. Some two hundred metres from where I sat, I could see the silhouette of a small, isolated country chapel in the middle of a snow-covered field. Without quite knowing why, I got up and made my way towards it. When I was about a dozen metres away, I noticed that the chapel had no door. The stone walls had been blackened by the flames that had devoured the building. I climbed the steps to what had once been the entrance and went in. The remains of burned pews and loose pieces of timber that had fallen from the ceiling were scattered among the ashes. Weeds had crept into the building and grown up around the former altar. 
the fading light shone through the narrow stone windows. I sat on what remained of a pew in front of the altar, and heard the wind whispering through the cracks in the burned-out vault. I looked up, and wished I had even a breath of the faith my old friend Sempere had possessed, his faith in God or in books, with which I could pray to God or to hell, to give me another chance, and let me take Christina away from that place. Please, I murmured, fighting back the tears. I smiled bitterly, a defeated man pitifully begging a god in whom he had never trusted. I looked around at that holy sight, filled with nothing but ruins and ashes, emptiness and loneliness, and knew that I would go back to fetch her that very night, with no more miracle or blessing than my own determination to tear her away from the clutches of that faint-hearted, infatuated doctor who had decided to turn her into his own sleeping beauty. I would set fire to the sanatorium rather than allow anyone to touch her again. I would take her home and die by her side. Hatred and anger would light my way. I left the old chapel at nightfall and crossed the silvery field which glowed in the moonlight, returning to the tree-lined path. In the dark I followed the trail of the irrigation channel until I glimpsed the lights of Villa San Antonio in the distance and the citadel of towers and attic windows surrounding the lake. When I reached the sanatorium I didn't bother to ring the bell next to the wrought iron gates. After jumping over the wall I crept across the garden then went round the building to one of the back entrances. It was locked from the inside, but I didn't hesitate a moment before smashing the glass with my elbow and grabbing hold of the door handle. I went down the corridor, listening to the voices and whisperings, catching the aroma of broth that rose from the kitchen, until I reached the room at the end where the good doctor had imprisoned Christina, his fantasy princess, lying forever in a limbo of drugs and straps. I had expected to find the door locked, but the handle yielded beneath my hand. I pushed the door open and went into the room. The first thing I noticed was that I could see my own breath floating in front of my face. The second thing was that the white-tiled floor was stained with bloody footprints. The large window that overlooked the garden was open, and the curtains fluttered in the wind. The bed was empty. I drew closer and picked up one of the leather straps with which the doctor and the orderly had tied Christina down. They had all been cleanly cut, as if they were paper. I went out into the garden and saw a trail of red footprints across the snow. I followed it to the stone wall surrounding the grounds, on which I found yet more blood. I climbed up and jumped over to the other side. The erratic footprints led off towards the village. I remember that I began to run. I followed the tracks as far as the park that bordered the lake. A full moon burned over the large sheet of ice. That is when I saw her. She was limping over the frozen lake, a line of blood-stained footprints behind her, the nightdress covering her body, trembling in the breeze. By the time I reached the shore, Christina had walked about thirty meters towards the center of the lake. I shouted her name and she stopped. Slowly she turned, and I saw her smile, as a cobweb of cracks began to weave itself beneath her feet. I jumped onto the ice, feeling the frozen surface buckle, and ran towards her. Christina stood still, looking at me. The cracks under her feet were expanding into a mesh of black veins. The ice was giving way, and I fell flat on my face. I love you, I heard her say. I crawled towards her, but the web of cracks was growing, and now encircled her. 
Barely a few meters separated us when I heard the ice finally break. Black jaws snapped open and swallowed her up into a pool of tar. As soon as she disappeared under the surface, the plates of ice began to join up, sealing the opening through which Christina had plunged. Caught by the current, her body slid a couple of meters towards me under the ice. I managed to pull myself to the place where she had become trapped, and I pounded the ice frantically. Christina, her eyes open and her hair streaming out around her, watched me from the other side of the translucent sheet. I hammered at the ice until I shattered my hands, but in vain. Christina never let her eyes stray from mine. She placed her hand on the ice and smiled. The last bubbles of air were escaping from her lips, and her pupils dilated for the last time. A second later, she began to sink forever into the blackness. I didn't return to my room to collect my things. From where I was hiding among the trees by the lake, I saw the doctor and a couple of civil guards approach the hotel, then spied them talking to the receptionist through the French windows. I crossed the village, stealing through the deserted streets, until I came to the station, which was buried in fog. Two gas lamps helped me distinguish the shape of a train waiting at the platform, its dark metal skeleton reflecting the red light of the stop signal at the end of the station. The locomotive had been shut down, and tiers of ice hung from its rails and levers. The carriages were in darkness, the windows veiled with frost. No light shone from the stationmaster's office. The train was not scheduled to leave for several hours, and the station was empty. I went over to one of the carriages and tried the door, but it was bolted shut. I stepped down onto the rails and walked round the train. Under cover of darkness, I climbed onto the platform linking the guard's van to the rear coach and tried my luck with the connecting door. It was open. I slipped into the coach and stumbled through the gloom until I reached one of the compartments. I went in and bolted the door. Trembling with cold, I collapsed onto the seat. I didn't dare close my eyes, fearing I would see Christina's face again, looking at me from beneath the ice. Minutes went by, perhaps hours. At some point I asked myself why I was hiding and why I couldn't feel anything. I cocooned myself in that void and waited, squirreled away like a fugitive, listening to a thousand groans of metal and wood as they contracted in the cold. I scanned the shadows beyond the windows until finally the beam of a lamp glanced across the walls of the coach and I heard voices on the platform. I cleared a spy hole with my fingers through the film of mist that coated the window pane and saw the engine driver and a couple of railway workers making their way towards the front of the train. Some ten meters away, the station master was talking to the two civil guards I'd seen with the doctor earlier. I saw him nod and extract a bunch of keys. Then he walked towards the train, followed by the two guards. I pulled back from the window. A few seconds later, I heard the click of the carriage door as it opened, then footsteps approaching. I unbolted the door, leaving the compartment open, and lay down on the floor under one of the rows of seats, pressing my body against the wall. I heard the civil guards drawing closer, and saw the beam from their torches drawing needles of blue light through the compartment window. When the steps stopped by my compartment, I held my breath. The voices subsided. I heard the door being opened, and a pair of boots passed within centimeters of my face. The guard remained there for a few seconds, then left and closed the door. I stayed where I was, motionless as he moved away down the carriage. 
A couple of minutes later I heard a rattling and warm air breathed out through the radiator grill by my face. An hour later the first light of dawn crept slowly through the windows. I came out from my hiding place and looked outside. Travellers walked alone or in couples up the platform, dragging their suitcases and bundles. The rumble of the locomotive could be felt through the walls and the floor of the coach. After a few minutes, the travellers began to climb into the train, and the ticket collector turned on the lights. I sat on the seat by the window, and acknowledged some of the passengers who walked by my compartment. When the large clock in the station struck eight, the train began to move. Only then did I close my eyes, and hear the church bells ringing in the distance, like the echo of a curse. The return journey was plagued by delays. Some overhead power cables had fallen, and we didn't reach Barcelona until the afternoon of that Friday, 23rd of January. The city was buried under a crimson sky, across which stretched a web of black smoke. It was hot, as if winter had suddenly departed, and a dirty, damp smell rose from the sewers. When I opened the front door of the tower house, I found a white envelope on the ground. I recognised the wax seal and didn't bother to pick it up, because I knew exactly what it contained a reminder of my meeting with the boss that very evening in his rambling old house by Guell Park, at which I was to hand over the manuscript. I climbed the stairs and opened the main door of the apartment. Without turning on the light, I went straight up to the study, where I walked over to one of the windows and stared back at the room, touched by the flames of that infernal sky. I imagined her there, just as she had described, kneeling by the trunk, opening it and pulling out the folder with the manuscript reading those accursed pages with the certainty that she must destroy them, lighting the matches and drawing the flame to the paper. There was someone else in the house. I went over to the trunk but stopped a few paces from it, as if I were standing behind her, spying on her. I leaned forward and opened it. The manuscript was still there, waiting for me. I stretched out my hands to touch the folder gently with my fingertips. Then I saw it. The silver shape shone at the bottom of the trunk, like a pearl at the bottom of a lake. I picked it up between two fingers and examined it. The angel brooch. Son of a bitch, I heard myself say. I pulled the box containing my father's old revolver from the back of the wardrobe and opened the cylinder to make sure it was loaded. I put the remaining contents of the ammunition box in the left pocket of my coat then wrapped the weapon in a cloth and put it into my right-hand pocket. Before leaving, I stopped for a moment to gaze at the stranger who looked at me from the mirror in the entrance hall. I smiled, a calm hatred burning in my veins, and went out into the night.